So should we start from this uh, these uh, three states? Yes, yes. that's a very good good place to start. <laughs> okay, you're welcome, Marcus. Go ahead. Okay, uh, Namaskaram. Namaskaram. The first question I've been asked to talk about is about the three states of waking, dream, and deep sleep. Why do we consider this waking state to be real? This is a common question, and not many can accept that the waking state is also another dream. Clarification on this would be nice. Yes, this is a very, very important topic. To understand why we consider this waking state to be real, it would be useful to consider why dream seems to be real so long as we are dreaming. Once we wake up from a dream, we then say, oh, it was just a dream, and we are able to recognize that it was just our own mental fabrication. But all the things we saw and heard and, um, and everything that we experienced in the dream was just a our own mental fabrication. There was no, the world we were seeing was not existing outside. Um, so if we understand why dream seems to be real, so long as we're dreaming, but ceases to seem real when we cease uh, to dream, that particular dream, that will throw a lot of light on why we take, why our present state seems to be real. What is actually real is only ourself. <coughs> we ourselves are the only thing that is real. But when we are dreaming, we experience ourselves as a body in that dream world. Because we experience ourselves as a body and we are seeing the dream world through the five senses of that body, since that body in our experience seems to be ourself. And since we are real, the body seems to be real. That is, we, we the one thing we can never doubt or deny the reality of is ourself. Everything that we experience could be just an illusion, but we ourselves must be real. There must be, if, if we didn't exist, we couldn't be aware of anything. So the fact that we are aware means that we do exist. So our awareness is the proof of our existence. So, um, oh, there's one point I will clarify here. That is, when Bhagavan talks about real and unreal, there's a very simple definition of what is real. What is real, to be real means to actually exist. So what actually exists is real. What doesn't actually exist, but merely seems to exist, is unreal. So uh, that, is the, that is the sense in which we're using the word real here. So when I say we alone are real, we are the only thing that actually exists. That is according to Bhagavan. And according to our experience, though other things seem to exist, we can doubt whether any of those things actually exist because they, they seem to exist where? They seem to exist in our, in our perception. So that the fact that we see something is not a proof that it exists because we see so many things that don't exist. In dream, we see a whole world that doesn't actually exist. It exists only in our perception, only in our, in our awareness. So, but the one thing, as I say, the one thing that we, whose existence we cannot doubt is our own existence. 
Because the very fact that we are aware means that we must exist. We couldn't be aware if we didn't exist. So, so our own existence is real. Everything else, the reality of it is in question. But so long as we experience ourselves as a body, because we experience that body as ourself, and because we ourselves are real, that body seems to us to be real. And the body is a part of the world. So if the body is, you, the body cannot be real unless the whole world is real. So, so the fact that we take this body as ourselves makes the body appear to be real, seem to be real. And consequently, the whole world seems to be real. So when we are dreaming, we are experiencing ourselves as a body in that dream world. So that body seems to be real, and hence the whole dream world seems to be real. But when we, as soon as we wake up from dream, that means as soon as we leave that dream and come to this state, um, we our identification with that dream body is cut. We, we no longer experience that dream body to be ourself. So it no longer seems to be real. This is why as soon as we wake up from a dream, we're immediately able to recognize, oh, it was just a dream. It wasn't real. It was just in my own mind. But so long as we were dreaming, it seemed very real. Sometimes in dream, for example, we experience things and we may think, oh, this is not possible. I can't. We, for example, in dream, we may be flying. Um, and we think to ourselves, no, this, this can't be real because um, uh, this must be just a dream because I can't really fly. But it seems so real. Then we think to ourselves, oh, maybe I can fly, but I just wasn't aware of it before because it's so easy to fly. And then we think, oh, I hope I don't forget how to fly. Now I'm able to fly. I shouldn't forget this. So it, it, but however improbable the condition, the situation is in dream, and however much we, the thought may occur to us, oh, this is just a dream, but the experience is so real that it the, 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 the reality the seeming reality of the experience over overrides all our reasoning that this can't be real. Another example: sometimes in dream, we meet friends or relatives who have passed away many years before. And we may be surprised. Oh, my father passed away so long before, and here he is, he's talking to me. But it to us, it seems so real, but that person is there and talking to us. We, we take this to be more real than that memory that the person had passed away. So maybe, maybe it was wrong information. Maybe they hadn't passed away or, or somehow they'd come back to life somehow. But the, 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 the situation we find ourselves in seems to be so real that it overrides all our reasoning and our memories and our to the contrary. In exactly the same way as the dream appears to be real, so long as we're dreaming, because we experience ourselves as a dream body, so the dream body seems to be real, and hence the whole world seems to be real, and hence even the dead people who've come back to life and we're talking to seem so real, everything seems real, our flying seems to be real, everything seems to be so real while, it, while you're actually experiencing it. But we, we, though we may think to ourselves in a dream, oh, this is just a dream, that mere thought that it's a dream doesn't override the, the, uh, 
the the the, the clear experience. Oh, this is real. It, I mean, the experience of what is is far stronger than any reasoning we may have about it. But however real we take it to be, as soon as we wake up, our identification with the dream body is severed. And immediately we, we recognize without a doubt, oh, it was all just a dream. None of it was real. So we, we, we supposedly in a dream, um, a very dear friend pass, has passed away. We may be grieving in the dream. As soon as we wake up, our grief vanishes because we, we reckon, oh, it was only a dream. It wasn't true. Our friend is, uh, hasn't really done. So like that, we, we, it seems so real because of our identification with that body in dream. In exactly the same way, so long as we are in this present state, which according to Bhagavan is just another dream, this seems to be real because now I experience myself as this body. So this body seems to me, I can't doubt the reality of this body because if this body is me, I'm certainly real, so this body must be real. And if this body is real, then this chair I'm sitting on and the table and the computer and the people on the, who are in different parts of the world who are, uh, who, who are having this, uh, joining in this conversation now, all, all seem to be so real so long as we identify ourselves with the body. So this is, this is why the waking state seems to us to be so real and why it seems difficult for us to, uh, to accept that this is just a dream. But if we consider carefully, though this seems to be re so real now, do we have any evidence that this is anything other than a dream? If we think about it, there is actually no evidence that this is anything other than a dream, because whatever we experience now, we could equally well experience in dream. People say, no, 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 but we have science. Science tells us that the world is uh, so many, this earth is so many billions of years old, the universe since the Big Bang, so many billions of years have passed. There are precise measurements and um, so many, there's so much corroborating evidence, so on and so forth. And there's the history books that tell us what happened before we were born. So obviously this world exists independent of our perception of it. All these things we can experience in dream. In, in dream, you can go to a, you can attend a, a lecture or a TED talk about, um, about physics, about astro, about what they call it, um, astrophysics or um, cosmology, the, 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 the theories about the origin of the cosmos according to modern physics. We can, you can attend a TED talk. In your, in your dream, you can get lots of information about all these things. So long as you're dreaming, it all seems so real. So there's nothing, there's no, any evidence we try to point out to say that this world is real, exists independent of ourselves. We can point out exactly the same evidence can be shown in dream, but that doesn't mean the dream is real. For example, if this world is just, if the, this present state is just a dream, that means when we don't see this, it doesn't exist. So that means when we're dreaming, we're not, wait, sorry, when, when we're asleep, when we're in, in deep dreamless sleep, we're not aware of the body, we're not aware of the world, either this body or any dream body, either this world or any dream world. We're not aware of any body or any world at all. 
but we assume this world exists even when we're not perceiving it. And if someone questions us, we'll say, no, I may not have been perceiving the world, but when I come back to waking state and I ask others, they will tell me, yes, the world existed. We saw your body lying on the bed while you were sleeping. There were so many um, things happening in the day, morning. We can, we can uh, pick up a newspaper or open and turn on the television. We can see the news and we can find out that there was such and such a thing happened in the middle of last night, There's, all this seems to us to be evidence that the world existed when we were uh, asleep. But if you ask anyone in a dream, did this world exist when I was asleep? They will give you, they will give you exactly the same assurance that people in this state will give. If you turn on the, the news, uh, the television, or look in your PC, or open a newspaper in uh, a dream, it will, it will give you the same evidence that you can get now. So that we, if we consider it critically, there is nothing about our present state that is evidence, that is adequate evidence, that is true evidence, that this is anything but a dream. If, you, if Whatever evidence we may try and point out, we should consider ourselves to ourselves. Can we, could we experience that in dream? Obviously, we could. We can experience anything in dream. So there's no evidence that this is anything other than a dream. So in the absence of any evidence, should we believe something? <laughs> Obviously not. Then people say, oh, but you if you believe that this is a dream, why shouldn't I believe that it's not a dream? Isn't that equally reasonable? No, it is not. Because if you say this is a dream, you are saying this has no, there's no world existing outside the mind. There's no world that exists independent of your perception of it. So you're, by saying this is a dream, you are not making any claims uh, that are not reasonable. Yes, the world may not exist, but I see it. Exactly the same in dream. The world doesn't exist. We see in a dream doesn't exist, but we see it. So... All we can say about this world is that it, it seems to exist. We cannot say that it actually exists. But if we say this is not a dream, this is some state superior to a dream, this is more real than a dream, because this world exists even when I don't see it, we are then making a claim for which we have no evidence. There, there is no more evidence that this world exists when we don't see it, but the dream world exists when we don't see it. As soon as we wake up from a dream, we recognize, oh, it was just a dream. That world had no existence independent of my perception of it. We don't, if we met a friend in our dream last night, we don't go meet the friend and say, oh, that was a very nice conversation we had in my dream. Did you enjoy that conversation? No, we, we know but the friend we saw in our dream it was just in our own mind that we were having that uh, conversation with a friend. That friend. That friend wouldn't have experienced what we experienced. So when we, when we think of it critically, there's, there's no evidence that this is anything but a dream. And if we claim this is something more than a dream, we are claiming that things exist for which we have no evidence. If we say this world exists independent of our perception of it, where is the evidence? We, the only evidence we have that this world exists is our perception of it. But our perception of it doesn't prove that it exists. All our perception proves is that 
to us it seems to exist. And the important thing there, when we talk about you know, in Advaita, they say the world is just an appearance. But the one one that that is, but what Bhagavan has taught us is the Advaita in its purest form. But Bhagavan has 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 pointed out certain subtle things, have made certain things clear, but make the whole thing more clear and more simple. For example. This whole world is, a, is an appearance. It's said in Advaita. That is, this is called Vivartavada. Vivarta means it's an illusory appearance. So the basic, one of the basic tenets, tenets of Advaita philosophy is that everything other than ourselves, the world, and everything that we perceive is just an appearance. But Bhagavan asked the all-important question, to whom does it appear? Because there cannot be an appearance without it appearing to someone. Something is called an appearance because it appears to something. Something is said to seem to exist because it seems to exist in the view of something. So all we can say about this world is it seems to exist. And to whom does it seem to exist? It seems to exist to me. So the, the seeming existence of the world depends on my perception of it. And we have no exist we have absolutely no evidence that any world exists or anything exists independent of our perception of it. So what Bhagavan teaches us is very reasonable. But he's teaching this not just as a philosophy. There are so many philosophies in the world. There are what are called realist philosophies that take the world to be real. And there are what are called idealist philosophies that say it's all in the mind. And there are so many variations of all these. But we, we are not here just for the sake of philosophy. Because, as I say, the important thing is, ultimately, whether this world exists or not, what is important, to whom does it, even if the world doesn't actually exist, at least it seems to exist. But to whom does it seem to exist? That is the important point. That is what Advaita is pointing at. All of Advaita teachings, if we understand them correctly, they're all pointing back to ourselves. For example, it is said in the Upanishads, there is one only without a second. Ekam eva advaitiam. Ekam means one. Eva means only. Advaitiam means without a second. So that is one of the basic principles of Advaita. There is only one, there's only one thing and there's no second thing. So what is that one thing? Advaita says, Tattvamasi, you are that. So what do we have to understand from this? The whole aim of the Upanishads, if, if we understand them deeply, the whole aim of the Upanishads is to turn, and the whole of Vedanta is to turn our attention back towards ourselves. This is what Bhagavan has emphasized. Because so many people talk Vedanta philosophy. They debate about Advaita, Vishistha Dvaita, um, uh, Dvaita, um, Veda, 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 Chintya, or so many different, innumerable different interpretations of Vedanta. Vedanta means basically the philosophy of the Upanishads, which were summarized in the Brahma Sutra and which were also uh, expressed in the Bhagavad Gita. These three sets of texts, the Upanishads, the 
Brahma Sutra and the Bhagavad Gita. These are the Prasthanatraya, the three foundational texts of Advaita. These, give, these texts are, are meant to suit different people at different stages of spiritual development. So they can be and have been interpreted in many different ways. One of those ways is Advaita. That is the, the Bhagavan obviously was an, clearly an Advaitin. But even those, even the vast majority of Advaitins, they don't understand the practice import of Vedanta. They, they know the philosophy. They've read, they've read the Upanishads, they've read the Brahma Sutra, the Bhagavad Gita, they've read commentaries on them, they've studied so many other associated texts, they can give lectures for hours on their end about Advaita philosophy. But the one thing they miss is what is the practical implication? They, for example, they say, uh, uh, to, uh, the study of Vedanta entails sravana, manana, niditiasana. Sravana literally means hearing, but it, inclu it, that's, uh, it includes reading, studying. So learning the uh, Advaita, learning the basic philosophy, that is sravana. Manana means thinking about it deeply, making sense of it all. They, merely reading something doesn't mean you've understood it. You need to think about it. You need to understand why is it said like this here? Why is it said like that there? How these are reconciled? What is the correct interpretation of this? What is the implication? This is manana. And the third and most important of all is niditiasana. Niditiasana, the word niditiasana simply means deep contemplation. If you listen to lectures on Vedanta, they will talk about Sravana Manana Nidityasana. But if you ask what is Nidityasana, that is the one place where it, no, you, you cannot get, it's very rare to get a clear answer. The logical thing is, since Vedanta is all about Brahman, the, the, the deep contemplation should be on what? It should be on Brahman. So who is Brahman? You are that. So how do I contemplate on Brahman? I have to contemplate on myself. There's no Brahman. If, 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 if we take the plain, straightforward meaning of Tattvamasi, you are that, uh, or that is uh, that, that you are, the correct order. Um, the straightforward meaning is that the straightforward implication is but there's no such thing as Brahman other than you. So if you want to meditate on Brahman, on what do you have to meditate? You have to meditate on you. This point is missed. So the, 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 the people will give lectures for hours and write voluminous books and commentaries and sub-commentaries and um, they'll dis talk, discuss different interpretations and everything, but they're missing the point. The point is... Vedanta is a philosophy, but it's a philosophy with a purpose, with a practical purpose. It's not just for the sake of philosophizing. We can learn, we can learn, study all of Vedanta, but how is it going to help us when death comes? We're going to die anyway. It's not merely knowing, merely having the idea, I am not this body, I am Brahman, that doesn't solve our problems. We, we, we've all heard, yes, we are not this body, we are Brahman, we are infinite, um, we are Anadi, Ananta, Kanda, Satchit, Ananda, we are uh, Satyam, Jnanam, Anantam, we are infinite. 
is it is that our experience? No, <laughs> our experience is no. I'm this little body. I'm this finite body. So, but ignorance lies in our identification with this body, because when we experience ourselves as I am this body, we're not aware of ourselves as we actually are. So, how can we get rid of this? They say that the problem is abidya, ignorance, and ignorance can be removed only by bidya. But many of these Advaitins, they think vidya can be gained only from the textbook, only from the text. It's only from the from the Upanishads and the Brahma Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita. Only from there you can get vidya. Uh, but all you can get from books is information. You cannot get the actual experience of being of of um, of. Um, of being infinite. That's why Bhagavan says in the 16th paragraph of Nana, all the books say that for attaining mukti, one should, it's necessary to subdue or to make the mind cease. When this truth is known, what is the use of reading without limit? Going on and on reading more and more books, thinking that you're going to get Brahmanyana by reading books, is foolishness. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa said this in a very simple, homely way. He said the Panchangam. Panchangam means the astrological um, uh, almanac. But Panchangam may tell you when it is going to rain. But no matter how hard you squeeze the pages of a Panchangam, you'll not be able to get even a drop of water from them. That is a way of saying these books are useful. They point out something useful, but you cannot get that from the books itself. What the, what the Upanishads tell us is you are that. So what should we understand from that? Oh, if I am that, then I need to know myself. How can I know myself? Not by going back to the books. I can't know myself from books. I need to investigate myself. That's why Bhagavan says in, in that 16th paragraph, does, does a person called Raman need a mirror to know he is Raman. Do we need the books to, to know what we are? We, the books can give us information. They can point us in the right direction, but the books cannot reveal to us what we actually are, because what we actually are is not just a piece of information. Okay, now I know I am Brahman, we can say. When we say, I know I am Brahman, that means I have I have read the books. I now have that piece of information. But information is not real knowledge. Information is not vidya. The vidya that is talked about is actual experiential knowledge. We need to experience ourselves as Brahman. And how can we experience ourselves as Brahman? So long as we are experiencing anything other than ourselves, we who are experiencing that are ego, the false awareness that is aware of itself as I am this body. So we cannot know ourselves as Brahman without, Brahman is pure awareness, uh, Pragnanam Brahman, it is said. That implies Brahman is just pure awareness. Pure awareness means awareness that is not aware of anything other than itself. So, so long as we're attending to anything other than ourselves, we, we cannot know what we actually are. We need to withdraw our attention from all other things by focusing it on ourselves alone. Only that, that it's only by turning our entire attention back towards ourselves that we can know ourselves as we actually are. If you want to see something, 
You cannot see it by reading books about it. You, if you want to see something, you need to look at it. There's no, there, there's no other means to see something than to look at it. There's no other means to know ourselves than to look at ourselves. Look at ourselves means not with our eyes, obviously. It's not, we're not talking about looking at a physical object. We're not talking about looking at an object at all. We need to withdraw our attention from all objects and focus it on ourselves, the subject, the one to whom all these objects appear. So, um, I've, in a sense, I've uh, covered now the first two questions, because the other one was Bhagavan's main teaching simplified. Um, I can say a bit more on this. Have, have I covered the, the point about waking dream and... Oh, about waking, dream, and sleep, I'll just say one more thing. I talked about waking and dream and why we have no reason to suppose the waking state is anything but a dream. But these are only two of the three states that we experience. We are, we are aware every day. We, we, now we are in what seems to be the waking state. We also know that there are states we call dream. But we also know there's a third state in which we are not, in, in waking and dream, we're aware of ourselves as I am, this, I am this body, whether this body or some other body, we're always aware of ourselves as a, a body, and we're consequently aware of the world. But there's a third state in which we are not aware of anything. However, that third state is a state we call sleep. However, though in sleep we are not aware of anything, we are aware. This is a point that most of us overlook. The very fact that we are aware of having been in a state in which we were not aware of anything means we were aware of being in that state. Of course, when we were in that state, we weren't thinking, I'm not aware of anything, because even the thought, I'm not aware of anything, wasn't there. Even the one who thinks that, who could think that thought is not there. There is just pure awareness. Sleep is a state of pure being and pure awareness. We are, we are aware, but not aware of anything. We're, if at all we, we want to say we're aware of something, we're aware of our own existence. But obviously our existence is not an object of awareness. So we are aware, I am, that's all. So that is a state of pure awareness. This is a very important, this is the most important point about this uh, when we analyze our experience of the three states. Because since we exist in sleep without being aware of anything other than ourselves, that means without being aware of a body or a world of any phenomenon whatsoever, we can, that no phenomenon can be ourselves. Now I seem to be this body, but can this body be what I actually am? No, it cannot, because I, I exist in sleep and I'm aware of myself in sleep without being aware of this body. If this body was myself, I couldn't be aware of myself without being aware of this body. In dream, I'm aware of myself, not as this body, some other body. But in when Bhagavan talked of the word body, he, uh, that is when he says, ego is nothing but the false awareness, I am this body. Or in other words, that which is aware of itself as I am this body. What he meant by body is not just the physical body. Because we never experience the physical body on its own as ourself. When we, whenever we experience this physical body, 
the body always seems to be alive. The life in the body is what is called prana. And not only is the body alive, nobody has ever experienced a dead body as I. Um, not only the body that we experience as ourselves alive, it's also seemingly awake. That is, the mind, intellect, and will are operating within it. So whenever we experience ourselves as a body, that experience, I am this body, includes the life, the mind, the intellect, and the will. So these five, the physical body, the life, the mind, the intellect, and the will, are what are called the panchakosha, the five sheaths. Um, there, in that context, the term mind means the grosser functions of the mind. Subtler than the, than the, the grosser functions, subtler functions are the functions of the intellect. Though intellect is, it, sometimes the term mind is used to include all of, uh, or, or, or that is the mind, intellect, will, and even ego, all are collectively called mind, but the, the grosser functions of the mind, the thinking, remembering, feeling, um, emotions, uh, and so on, those are all the grosser function. That's called the manomaya kosha, the sheath composed of mind. Subtler than that is the vijnanamaya kosha, the sheath composed of intellect. Um, that, that's the reasoning, uh, judging, discriminating, um, recognizing, um, uh, uh, being able to see the distinctions and so on. That is the functions of the intellect. Subtler than the intellect is the will. The will consists of, uh, in its grosser form, it consists of likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, hopes, fears, and so on. But all of these in their seed form are what are called vasanas, which are inclinations. The inclination that the likings in their subtlest form are called vasanas. So the will essentially consists of vasanas. <clears throat> so these are all sheaths. Ego is not any of these five sheaths. Ego is all because all these five sheaths are objects. That is, we're aware of our desires, we're aware of our likes and dislikes. They, but we're aware of them as objects. We, we, they, that is, who is aware of this, but I, I like to eat chocolate. Who is aware of that liking to eat chocolate? I am aware of it. So but, but liking to eat chocolate is something experienced by me. I am the experiencer. So but, but liking to eat chocolate is an object. But I who likes to eat chocolate is the subject. So ego is the subject. Ego is not any of these five sheaths. But whenever we rise as ego, we experience ourselves as I am this body consisting of these five sheaths. So though ego is distinct from the five sheaths, it always attaches itself to these five sheaths and takes them to be itself. Um, so from this we understand now we are experiencing ourselves as this body consisting of five sheaths. But these are not what we actually are, because none of these five sheaths exist in sleep. Some people who studied Vedanta will say, no, 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 uh, uh, the, the Anandamaya Kosha remains in sleep. Anandamaya Kosha is another name for the will. That remains in sleep. It's said in all the books. That is an explanation that is given to satisfy people who want to know. If, 
if nothing exists in sleep, then how do we come out of if if they if ego completely ceases to exist in sleep, how does it come out of sleep again? So it said, oh, vasanas remain there, so vasanas prompt ego to rise again. But how can vasanas exist in the absence of ego? They cannot, according to Bhagavan. Sleep is a state devoid of I, devoid of mind, devoid of ego, and therefore it is also devoid of vasanas. It's only from the perspective of ego in waking and dream, but it seems that, oh, then those, those vasanas must have been there in seed form. That's our inference, because we want to have a nice explanation of how we rose again. According to Bhagavan, we never rose again. We haven't risen even now. Risen means risen as ego. We seem to have risen as ego because we don't look at ourselves. If we look at ourselves, we will see we had never risen. We always, our nature is not rising or doing, our nature is just being. So, but now, so long as we, in waking and dream, we always experience ourselves as this body consisting of five sheaths. But this is not what we actually are. So what is required, uh, the awareness, I am this body, is ignorance. How do we get rid of this ignorance? Only by being aware of ourselves as we actually are. How can we be aware of ourselves as we actually are? We need to investigate ourselves. So Bhagavan's path is the path of self-investigation. As I say, this word vichara is used a lot in Vedantic, in, particularly in Advaitic literature. But the, most people have failed to understand what vichara means. If you listen to the lecturers, if you ask the lecturers, how, what is vichara? They'll say, oh, there are different ways you can do vichara. You can, you can, um, there is the, there are different prakriyas, they call them, different methodologies. Uh, you can analyze the three states of waking, dream, and sleep. That's one form of vichara. You can discriminate between drishya vivaka. You can distinguish the seer from the seen, the experience, subject from objects. That's another way you can do it. And they, there are different prakriyas like this. You can distinguish between um, what is eternal and what is ephemeral what is changing and what is unchanging. These are all preliminaries. These are all to labor the groundwork. That is, in order to investigate what we actually are, we first need to understand what we are not. If I am this body and I'm asked to investigate myself, I can look in a mirror and I can see I've got certain features. Or if I want to know a bit more, I can go to a doctor and ask him to cut me up and show, see all the different bits and pieces that are made up. A research on the body is research on an object. That is not self-investigation. Research on the mind. The mind, the mind means the mind in the sense of the perceptions, the memories, and the thoughts and feelings and so on. They're all objects. Intellect and its function, its 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 activity, its um, its functions. They're all objects. The will, all objects. We are not here to investigate any object. We are here to investigate ourselves, the subject. And if we investigate the subject, if the subject is ego, as Bhagavan says, the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by attending to things other than itself. In other words, we seem to be ego so long as we're not looking at ourselves. So long as we're looking at other things, we seem to be ego. 
We seem to be, I am this body. Yes, certainly that is the case. But if instead of looking at any objects, we turn our attention back towards the subject to see who am I, ego will thereby subside. Uh, because ego cannot rise or stand without grasping things other than itself. The first thing it grasps, it grasps is body, as I am this body. And then constantly it's going out grasping things of the world. Grasping means being aware of. Uh, so um, in order to know ourselves, we need to cease holding on to other things. We need to hold on to ourselves. But as Bhagavan says, ego is a formless phantom. So when you try to hold on to ego, it, it has nothing to hold on to, so it subsides, merges back into its source. What is the source from which we've risen as ego? As I say, ego rises in waking and dream, rises and stands in waking and dream. It subsides in sleep. So the place from which ego has risen and the place in which it subsides, that is the source from which, we, uh, from which ego has risen. What is that source? That is what exists in sleep. What is it that exists in sleep? Only this fundamental awareness I am. So we ourselves are the source from which we have risen as ego. So the, the self-investigation. So initially we seem to be investigating ego, but ego actually has no existence of its own independent of I am. Because ego is the false awareness, I am this body. Without I am, there cannot be this false awareness. So the, the, the Adhisthana or Adhara, the basis, the ground from which ego rises and into which it's, on which it stands and into which it subsides, that is this fundamental awareness I am, which exists in all the three states. So uh, initially, we seem to be investigating uh, ego. But as we go deeper in this investigation, we begin to recognize what we're investigating is not ego, the rising I, we're investigating the being I, that is I in its pure form. This is like if you, if you see a snake, uh, sorry, if you see a rope and mistake it to be a snake, if someone tells you, no, it's not a snake, it's only a rope, but to you, it still seems to be a snake. When you look at it, no, no, I, I think I, I, did I see it moving there? No, maybe it's, maybe that's its head, that's its tail, maybe it's moving. Because of the, we've got that idea so firmly rooted in our mind that it's a snake. We're not easily able to root that idea out. Even if our friend is correct, but it's a rope, it's still too risky to go close because supposing that my friend, supposing we're not mistaken, supposing our friend is mistaken. So it's very risky. But if our friend tells us, well, the only way you can get rid of this snake is to look at it carefully. If we pluck, have a little faith in our friend's words and pluck up some courage and go and look at it carefully, what do we see? We see it's just a rope. So, though it seemed to be a snake, it was always actually just a rope. Likewise, though we now seem to be ego, the rising eye that grasps the body as itself, what we actually are is only the being eye. So, if we look at ourselves cleanly enough, we will see that we are not ego, we are just that pure being, pure awareness, I am. So, this is Bhagavan's teachings simplified, Bhagavan's teachings in a nutshell. Thank you, Michael. 
great combination with these two questions and it covered actually <laughs> well they're inseparable they're inseparable <laughs> yeah. um, is there any I question? mean, what is the purpose of well in in if you go to the lecturers the the, the learned swamis who talk about vedanta they'll go they, they can they will uh, talk for hours on end about this uh, waking dream and sleep and why we are not this body, why we're not this mind, why we're not this, why so on and so forth. But what's the practical implication of this? Bhagavan says very beautifully in verse 32 of Uludunapadu, when the Vedas say you are that, I paraphrase it here because he puts it a bit more, he puts it in a very aphoristic way. So I paraphrase slightly. When the Vedas say you are that, what should our response be? Oh, if I am that, then what am I? That should be our response. So Bhagavan said, when the Vedas say you are that, if instead of knowing and being, uh, being uh, by investigating that, uh, by investigating what? That means what am I? Thinking I am not this body, I am that Brahman is... Um, I think he says, I think that's the verse in which he says, it, it is uh, it's due to weakness of mind. Wait a second, I'll just get the verse. Um, yes, it's due to lack of strength, he says. What he says in that verse is, when the Vedas proclaim that is you, in other words, Tatvamasi, instead of oneself being, knowing oneself as what, thinking I am that, not this, is due to non-existence of strength, because that alone is always seated as oneself. What that implies is, when the Vedas proclaim, you are that, what we should do, we should investigate ourselves, what am I, and thereby know us, know and be what we actually are. Instead of doing so, if we merely think, I am that, I am Brahman, I'm not this body, that is merely due to non-existence of strength. We miss the point. But the, when Vedas point out, you are that, they, they don't expect us to think, I, I am that, I'm not this body. When you're told, this is, this is not a snake, this is a rope. What is the use of merely sitting there thinking, this is not a snake, this is a rope, this is not a snake, this is a rope. So long as you see it as a snake, you're still not, you're still too afraid to go close to it. So merely thinking that it's, it is a, it, it's not a snake, but a rope. So long as it, it seems to you to be a snake, that thought has very little power. That's why Bhagavan says it's due to non-existence of strength. If you have the strength of courage, if you really believe it's a rope, not a snake, Go and look at it carefully. Confirm your belief. There's no, there's no point in believing something, but you is not your experience. You need to confirm. You need, well, whatever is said, there's no, it's of no use to us unless we confirm it for ourselves. So we need to look at the, at the snake and see what it actually is. If it's a, if it's a snake, it will hiss at us. But if we look at it closely enough, we'll see, oh, it's just a rope. It's harmless. So merely thinking, I am not this, I am that, or merely going on studying the text, merely going on talking about these things for ages, is, I mean, you can go on for lifetime studying Vedanta without understanding, without getting the point. The point is 
The whole purpose of, of uh, that is all of Vedanta is summarized in those three words, Tattvamasi. You are that. So what is the implication of that? If you are that, we can forget about that. We need to investigate you. That we don't know. You we do know. That we know ourselves. We don't know that. In order to know that, we need to know ourselves. So we need to investigate ourselves. One thing came on in mind, Michael. In some Vedantic teachers, they say that these three states occur, but our real state is the fourth state, so to speak. So now in Bhagavan's point of view, the third state or this deep sleep is actually our real state. And there's no need for thinking about a fourth yeah. state. So yes. actually the third state is the real true state. Well, Bhagavan says, um, that's verse in Uludhan after Anabandam. Bhagavan says, it's only for those who, who take these three states to be real, but that is said to be the fourth. But the truth is, that is the only state. What is called the fourth is the only state. That state is our state even now. That, uh, the, that state, the fourth, is a state of pure awareness. Now, the pure awareness is seemingly concealed by our awareness of other things. In waking and dream, we're aware of ourself, I am, and we're also aware of so many other things. So the, the pure awareness is seemingly obscured by the awareness of other things. In the difference between waking and dream on one hand and sleep on the other hand is in sleep we are not aware of anything other than ourselves. So sleep is the state of pure awareness. So Sleep is the fourth state without anything superimposed on it. Waking and dream is the fourth state with something imposed on it. Fourth state means the only state. Okay. Uh, maybe, is there any questions at this point? We've gone through basically the first two questions quite nicely. Is there any questions about these three states or any idea, other thoughts about this or Bhagavan's teaching as uh, attention to the I or ourself and in attention to anything else. If I may ask a question, yes. one more. And uh, like uh, my impression is that uh, Bhagavan's uh, teaching and logic is uh, very concise and in a way it is uh, a sort of binary. Like there is real and there is uh, not real, unreal. And there is, and there are no like, uh, things in between at times uh, like to my mind and maybe to to the minds of more uh, of many other people maybe it would be uh, easier to grasp uh, when you say that uh, say the dream or the waking state they are real but uh, deep sleep is even more real than than those <laughs> <laughs> Or would it would it change uh, or distort Bhagavan's teaching uh, if we say so? Yes, it would. Uh, they, there is that is in in normally in Vedanta they talk about three levels of reality or three different types of reality. There's paramatika satya, that is the ultimate reality. There's viviharika satya, the transactional reality. 
and there's also Pratibhasika Satya. Some Advaitins say Pratibhasika Satya and Vibhaharika Satya, they're two different things. Some acknowledge, but actually they're one and the same. Vibhaharika means transactional. Pratibhasika means seeming. The seem, the, 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 and it's sometimes said that the ultimate truth is Paramatika. What we experience in waking state is Vibhaharika. What we experience in dream is, um, is uh, Pratibhasika. It's merely a seeming reality. That is that explanation satisfies those who take waking to be something other than a dream. But the deeper Vedanta, the deeper Advaita, says there's no, like Godapada in Mandukya Karaka, there's no difference between waking and dream. So the Vivaharika and the Pratipasika are one. But though they're called Vivaharika Satya and Pratipasika Satya, transactional reality and seeming reality, they're actually not reality at all. They're wholly unreal. There is no, there can be no degrees of reality. That's why I said, according to Bhagavan, real means what is real is what actually exists. What is unreal is what does not actually exist, even if it seems to exist. So there cannot be degrees of, um, they, well, if we want to, we can say there are degrees of unreality, but they're all, if it's unreal, it's wholly unreal. There's not really even degrees of unreality. There are different perspectives. Within unreality, there are so many different perspectives, different ways of viewing things. But unreality is wholly unreal. Reality alone is real. So there's no, there is no halfway point. Regarding what you say about binary, you say there is the real and there is the unreal. No. According to Advaita, there is only the real, there is no unreal. Unreal merely seems to exist. It doesn't actually exist. Um, that's one point. Another point is, if you want to have, what is the, now there seems to be the unreal. There is always what is real. What is real is I am. There is everything else is what seems to be real. Is there anything in between these two? According to Bhagavan, what is in between is ego. Ego is that which is, ego is called chit jada granti. Chit means awareness, that's the pure awareness, satchit. So chit is real. I, I, that is the I am element of ego. Jada means what is not aware. What is not aware is unreal because it seems to exist only in the view of something else. So ego is a, is a conflated mixture of what is real, namely the fundamental awareness I am, and what is unreal, namely the body consisting of five sheaths, which is jada. So it is called chit jada granti, but not granti formed by the entanglement of these two. So if you want to have something in between the real and the unreal, that is ego. But ego as ego is unreal. Ego as I am is real. Just like the snake is unreal as a snake, but it's real as a rope. Ego is unreal as ego, but it's real as I am, as the pure awareness I am. So ego, that's why we, can, we cannot find any reality 
in their external world, in any objects, in any phenomena, they are wholly unreal. If we want to find reality, we have to go through ego, because ego is the, has an element of reality in it. That is that fundamental awareness I am, that is real. So we can find reality only in ourselves. Other things seem to be real. As I say, because we take a body to be ourselves, the body seems to be real. And consequently, everything else seems to be real. So other things seem to be real, so long as we are attending to them. What is actually real is only ourself, not ourself as ego, but ourself as we actually are, as the fundamental awareness I am. So, in in a sense, yes, ego is is what is is what what's in between. So it's we have risen as ego, and it's so to speak through ego we have to go back to our source because ego has is what has to go back to its source. We have to leave everything else and return to our source. And only when ego dissolves in its source will everything else dissolve along with it. And then we'll know there is one only without a second. There is the real only without any unreal. Is that a satisfactory answer? Yes, yes. I, I just referred to the like binary terminology. Yeah, well, in, in fact, it's like unary. There is only uh, yeah. Satchitananda. Yeah. Yes. But in, when we are speaking, we term some things that are unreal, although they don't exist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, unreal means it doesn't exist. It merely seems to exist. Mm -hmm. And uh, one more. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, so but when, we are, when we are using language, when we are using thought, we are in the realm of duality. Thought and language occur only in mm -hmm. duality. So the, the, this... this appearance of duality or binary of real and unreal, um, existent, non-existent, um, knowledge, ignorance, all these pairs of opposites, they all seem to exist in the view of ego. If we investigate ego, and only when we investigate ego will all these pairs of opposites cease to exist and what is actually real alone will remain. So language will always entail, we cannot get away from duality so long as we're using language. We cannot get away from duality so long as we're using thought. We can get away from duality only by holding on to ourselves and sinking back into the heart. Sorry, you were about to ask something else. Yeah, one more, uh, actually maybe two small questions. Uh, about body, uh, you mentioned... Uh, uh, Bhagavan uses such term as body, mm. and uh, would would it be right to say that body in his language, in Bhagavan's language, means our bodily experience, not just our body, but uh, what we perceive as body, what we think as body, what we experience uh, being in a body? Nothing exists independent mm. of our awareness of it. So this body is just our awareness of this body. Mm. This, um, this microphone in front of me, it is just my awareness of the microphone. The microphone doesn't exist independent of my awareness of it. This body doesn't exist independent of our awareness of it. But uh, what does Bhagavan mean uh, by saying uh, 
like we are aware of our of ourselves as a body uh just uh it means like we are aware of ourselves as a ego well ego is that which is aware of itself as a body ego is not the body it is that which is aware of itself as the body mm-hmm. that is as ego we are always aware of ourselves as i am this body mm-hmm. thank you but the body as bhagavan said the body is jada the body has no awareness of its own so the body is not aware of itself as i mm-hmm. as he says in in the uh, in verse 24 of uludunapadu he begins by saying jada udul nane nadu but jada body does not say i there when he says say he's using that metaphorically to mean the body is not aware of itself as i why is it not aware of itself as i because it's jada that means it's not aware at all and the body there means all the five shivas all the five shivas the, the life the mind the intellect the will they're all jada none of them are aware what is aware is ego and because ego takes itself to be these five shivas the five shivas seem to be aware the body seems to be conscious mm-hmm. but it's not the body but it's conscious it's the i that is mistaken itself to be that body but it's conscious mm-hmm. and because this body seems to be conscious all the other bodies i see they also seem to be conscious mm. so body is a kind of projection of ego yes everything is a projection mm. of ego ego is the is the creator of everything ego is the first cause mm-hmm. and one more question <laughs> the yes, last certainly. one maybe uh uh about awareness like uh, you mentioned uh and in bhagavan's teaching it's it's mentioned that when we are in deep sleep uh we are just aware not aware aware of anything yeah. particular and is this kind of awareness uh just awareness without any attributes or uh yes. adjuncts to it is it the same as uh, a- awareness of not anything but of everything <laughs> like or, it's not awareness of anything at all there's just, no, there, there, there's not no, even awareness of everything yes <laughs> everything me it depends what you mean by everything if you mean there is only one thing so mm-hmm. everything is one <laughs> when you say everything is one you're denying the multiplicity but mm-hmm. many many people they they read a little bit of a dwaita and they say oh everything is one they don't they don't think deeply what that means if everything mm-hmm. is one then there's no multiplicity at all so long as mm-hmm. you're aware of multiplicity you're not aware of the oneness that is there's, there's one interpretation of uh, of uh, of vedanta called beda abeda vedanta it's the basis of many others it's the basis of vishistha dvaita it's the basis of um the uh chaitanya mahaprabhu's form of dvaita called chintya chint uh, what is it a chintya beda abeda vedanta but the basic idea beda means difference abeda means non difference so according to beda abeda there's difference in non difference and and non difference in difference 
when Bhagavan was asked about that, he said, it's, that is meaningless. If there is difference, there is not non-difference. If there is non-difference, there is not difference. You cannot have the two side by side. I mean, the two cannot coexist. You cannot say there are no differences and there are differences. It's a contradiction. So the, the truth is a beta. There are no differences whatsoever. All differences appear only in the view of ego. Mm -hmm. Now I explain so, what your question was. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> yes. So, uh, for example, if we uh, are aware of anything, uh, just by uh, operation of our mind, we have a kind of boundary that uh, something, I don't know, a table or some phenomenon, a war, we, we see where uh, this table is or where this event is and where it is not. And so yeah. if we are aware of anything, we are by definition, uh, we are not aware of something else. Just as there, is uh, there is a void in our awareness when we are aware of, any of something, for example. When, when we uh, are aware of everything in the sense of many things, we are aware of the one thing as many. Mm -hmm. And according to Bhagavan, seeing as many is ignorance. Seeing mm -hmm. the one as many, what actually exists is only one. So seeing it as many is ignorance. Uh, so, uh -huh. In verse 13 of Uludunapadu, he says, Nanabam yanam atnyanamam. That literally means awareness that, that is many is ignorance. Mm -hmm. But in an earlier version of that verse, he put nana by kan kindranyanam ajnanam. That means the awareness that sees as many is ignorance. Because that is what actually exists is only one. But mm -hmm. in that verse, he says, nyanamam tane me. Oneself who is uh, awareness, alone, pure awareness, alone is real. Jnana, alone is real. In the earlier version, he says, Jnanam Andre Unme, that is uh, Jnana, pure awareness, alone is real. Awareness that sees as many is ignorance. Why is it ignorant? Because what actually exists is only one. If you see the one as many, you know, that is ignorance. Mm -hmm. And so this complete awareness, it implies uh, like this true awareness when which we have uh, in deep sleep. Uh, it, it implies completeness, yes, uh, not completeness, void. Yes. Yeah. It, it oh. is, Bhagavan describes it beautifully in verse 28 of, of, um, of Upadesha India. In that verse he says, if one knows what the real nature of oneself is, then anadi... Anadi means beginningless. Ananta. Ananta means endless, limitless, infinite. Akanda. Uh, that means unbroken, undivided. Satchidananda. So there is, it, it's beginningless and endless in the sense that it's beyond time. Mm. It, it, is, it is endless in the sense that it has no limit. It, so it's, it's, mm. it's infinite. Being undivided means it's got neither has it got external limits nor has it got internal limits. If you divide something, if you divide mm -hmm. a, if you cut a cake into uh, into eight pieces, you've got you've got ex the external limit of the cake and you've also got internal limit. Each piece is separate from each other piece. But this is not like that. Satchidananda, 
has no external limits and it's got no internal limits. It's indivisible. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's clear. <laughs> <laughs> that will really be... It may seem clear to the mind. Clearer. Both, <laughs> clearer. <but laughs> clearer, exactly. exactly. It becomes clear sense. only when we turn within and lose ourselves completely in that. Bhagavan mm -hmm. said beautifully in verse... Uh, 20 or 21 of Uludanapitu, he says, he ends by saying, Unadal Khan. That's in verse, um, uh, yeah, verse 21. He says, he, 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 what he says in verse 21 is, um, if one asks what is the truth of many texts but say, oneself seeing oneself, seeing God, that is, some books talk about oneself seeing oneself. Other books talk about seeing God. So what is the truth of all these texts? He, he answered, since oneself is one, how is oneself to see oneself? If it is not possible to see, how to see God? That means if we can't see ourselves, how can we see God? Then he gives an answer to that. Unadal Khan. That literally means becoming food is seeing. So if you want to see God, you have to be swallowed by God. When, when, we, when we are completely devoured by him, that is, then we become him. Then we, well, not even become, we, we remain as him because we are always nothing other than God. But when we are devoured by him, that is when ego is completely eradicated, what remains, that state of pure being and pure awareness that remains, that is the state of oneself seeing oneself. That is the state of seeing God. So that's beautiful, beautiful saying, becoming food is seeing. So yes. Bhagavan's teachings are all about eradication of ego. The whole problem is ego. The solution to the problem is eradication of ego. So we must be devoured by God. So according to Bhagavan, uh, we don't need to acquire anything. We just need to get rid of uh, agents, yeah. right? Bhagavan said, if jnana were something to be acquired, it would be lost. Whatever comes has to go. So such a jnana would be unuseless. But we ourselves are jnana. Why are we not aware of ourselves as jnana? Because we're not looking at ourselves. We're looking elsewhere. And that brings us to the next question. But you see, it asked, why is Advaita and Bhagavan's path called the straight path? We have there, all spiritual paths can be divided into two. Either we're looking at ourselves or we're looking at other things. This is the path of looking at ourselves. All other paths are looking at something else, attending to something else. If they're looking at oneself, then they're the same path. So we, either we, we can look only in one of two directions. Either we look at ourselves or we look away from ourselves. All other paths are, in one way or another, looking at things other than ourselves. But one path that is looking at ourselves, well, looking at ourselves is by definition this one path of Atmavichara. This is Bhagavan's path. This is the true path of Advaita, although the vast majority of Advaitins miss the point. This looking at ourselves, that is what Advaita is all about. 
So long as you meditate on anything other than yourself, you've got duality. You've got a subject and an object. So what is Advaita meditation? It can only be meditation on ourselves. So long as we meditate on anything other than ourselves, you've got two there. So the true path of Advaita is this path of, this is the true Nidityasana, the true deep contemplation, contemplation on ourself alone. And why is it the straight path? Because what is our aim? Our aim is to know ourselves. Our aim is to see ourselves. What is the straight path to see ourselves? Look at ourselves. What is the straight way to, to, look, uh, to see the sun? You have to look at it. You have to turn and look. People sometimes talk about what is the method of self-investigation or what is the technique? Technique and method are not really appropriate. If, what is the, what is the uh, technique for um, watching a film on television? You have to just look at it. That's the technique. So if you want to see anything, you have to look at it. It's, so looking, if you call looking a technique, okay, it's a technique, it's a method. But it is so, it's too simple to be called a method. A method or a technique are needed for difficult things. There is nothing easier than looking at ourselves. It seems difficult because we have so much liking to look at other things. In order to look at ourselves, we need to give up looking at other things. So long as we're looking at other things, our attention is only partially, at best, it's only partially on ourselves. Most of the time when we're looking at other things, we're completely ignoring ourselves. Ourself means the basic awareness I am. Even when we're, we're thinking so much about this person we take ourselves to be, we're still attending to something other than ourselves because this person is not what we actually are. So, so long as I'm worrying about Michael and Michael's problems and how to solve Michael's problems, I'm not thinking of my, I'm not attending to myself. I'm attending to this fellow called Michael who is not myself who's just a, an appearance, who appears in waking and disappears in sleep. He existed, he, he seems to exist now, he didn't exist before his death, he's not going to exist after his death, he seemed to exist before his, he didn't exist before his birth, he's not going to exist after his death. So he's just a, a, a temporary appearance. So this fellow Michael is not myself. So long as I'm concerned about Michael, my attention is going in the wrong direction. So thinking about ourself or attending to ourself means attending only to I am, not to any of the five sheaves. So this is the direct path because we're looking directly at what we want to know, what we want to see. What could be straighter or more direct than looking to see what we want to see? So all other paths, all yoga, all the this is this is the highest part of bhakti. That's why Bhagavan says in um, after describing different practices of bhakti, japa, uh, puja, japa, dhyana, and and um, and grading them according to their relative efficacy in purifying the mind. He then says in verse eight of Upadeshundia, Anya Bhavatin Abanahamahum Ananya Bhavame Undipara. Anyabhava means meditating on something other than oneself. In this context, it means meditating on God as something other than ourselves. Rather than Anyabhava, Ananyabhava. Ananya means what is not other. 
If you meditate on what is not other than yourself, what, how can you meditate on what is not other than yourself? Only by meditating on yourself. So Nanya Bhava means self-attentiveness, being self-attentive or investigating ourselves. And Nanya Bhava, Abhanahamahum Ananya Bhava, Abhanahamahum means in which he is I. So with the understanding that God is not something other than ourselves, but is what is shining in our heart as I, what we should, when we understand that, what should we meditate on? On I alone. So that rather than meditating on God as something other than ourselves, meditating on him as I alone is anatinum utamum. That is the best of all. So this is the highest practice of bhakti. All other practices of bhakti is meditating on some name or form of God or worshipping some name or form of God. That's something anya, something other than ourselves. And yoga, yoga is, that is the aim of yoga, potentially says right at the beginning of the Yoga Sutra, yoga's chitta vritti nirodha. Yoga is the subjugation or the curbing or controlling or restraining of chitta vrittis. That means act, mental activity. So the aim of yoga is to stop the mental activity. But so long as you're concerned about stopping the mental activity, your attention is on something other than yourself. Bhagavan, on the other hand, says, However many thoughts rise, so what? Big deal. Bhagavan is least concerned about thoughts. As and when every, any thought appears, to who? You, what do we, do we need to do? We need to investigate to whom it appears. But thoughts are very welcome because they come to remind us but we are, our attention is going away from ourselves. So turn the attention back to ourselves. So but thoughts come as warnings. Hey, you're looking in the wrong direction. Don't look at us. Look at yourself. That's what every thought is telling us, but we miss the point. So, so yoga is preoccupied with chitta vrittis and how to control the chitta vrittis. And because they're just trying to control the chitta vrittis, they end up in a state they call Nivikalpa Samadhi, or they've got some other name. I've forgotten what it's called. Uh, some, uh, I've forgotten what the technical term in yoga. But it's, it's what is otherwise called Nivikalpa Samadhi, which according to Bhagavan is just a state of manolaya. Manolaya means a temporary dissolution of mind. Why is the mind only temporary dissolved? Because to bring about the permanent dissolution of mind, manonasa, we need to know what we actually are. And we can know what we actually are only by looking at ourselves. Merely withdrawing our attention from other things doesn't enable us to see ourselves. Every day when we fall asleep, we're too tired to continue thinking, continue projecting other things. So the chitta vritti narodaha is effortlessly achieved every day when we're too tired to continue thinking. We go into a state of manolaya. So yoga is 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 an incomplete path because it only leads you to manolaya and manolaya is just a dead end you don't you you can't make any progress when you're in manolaya you have to come back again so bhagavan says if at all you want to practice yoga pranayama or any other yoga practices practice them to a certain extent till you reduce the the speed at which the mind is racing outwards and then you, you use that relatively calm mind to turn within. This is what he implies later in, 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 um, 
in uh, in Upanishadia, in verses eleven and twelve, he explains that. Uh, but since the mind and the breath both originate from the same source, if you control one, you control the other. If you if you control the mind, if you reduce the speed at which the mind is going outwards, the breath will calm down. Or if you calm down the breath, the mind will also calm down. So this is a means to to pacify, to calm the mind. Is is pranayama. But then Bhagavan says in verse 13, but dissolution of mind is of two kinds, layer and nasa. That which is in layer will come, will rise again. That which is in nasa will never rise again. So what is our aim? Our aim is not layer, our aim is nasa. Sleep is manolaya. Nivikalpa samadhi is manolaya. Coma is manolaya. Swoon is manolaya. Uh, general anesthesia is manolaya. Any state in which the mind is dissolved, but from which it comes back is manolaya. All these states of manolaya, the reason they are temporary, the reason the mind comes back again, is because we've gone, we go into those states due to, in the case of sleep, due to tiredness. In the case of coma, maybe due to head injuries. In the case of uh, of uh, general anesthesia it, it, due to some drugs that have been administered. In the case of Nivikalpa Samadhi, due to the pranayama and other yoga practices, none of these bring about the permanent destruction of mind because the mind can be destroyed, that ego can be destroyed only by knowing itself. And in order to know itself, it needs to see itself. So self-investigation alone can bring about the destruction of um, the destruction of um, of mind. So all other so in verse thirteen, Bhagavan says there, there three two types of dissolution of mind: layer, which is temporary, because mind's going to rise again, or nasa, which is permanent, because mind never rises again. Then in verse fourteen, he says, the mind which is calmed by pranayama, if that mind only if that mind is sent on the Orvari, the investigating path, will its form die? The investigating path means the path of self-investigation. So only, so what, what Bhagavan used to say is, if you calm down the mind by means of pranayama, before you subside in Manalaya, you should then turn the mind back within to see who am I. If you don't do so, you'll end up in, in Manalaya. If you if you send the mind on this investigating path, in other words, if you turn the attention back within to see who am I, then the, then only will the mind dissolve in layer. It's sorry, in nasa, in permanent destruction. <coughs> so, does that adequately answer why it's the straight path? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> But nowadays, because people have heard this term, direct path or straight path, this term is banded around very freely by people without understanding what the direct path actually is. Some people talk about direct paths in plural. How can there be more than one direct path? If you want to get from A to B, there's only one straight line between A and B. Any line other than the straight line is a crooked line. So Bhagavan's path is not a crooked path. This is the straight path. 
<laughs> and the uh, term in Tamil he uses is nebari. Neb means uh, direct, straight. It also means straightforward, honest. There's no trickery here. We we cannot fool ourselves in this path. If we are really following this path, all all our all our uh, insincerity and all our fooling itself will, fooling ourselves will be fully exposed. So this is a path of perfect humility. If we're really following this path, we will become more and more humble because we now will see. That East, now that it was Easter, I, somehow nowadays even more, I get uh, the, all these uh, Christ's teachings and sayings, which always, almost always include this I. And uh, I've now somehow always related straight to Bhagavan's mm. uh, path because I see no difference between these. Uh, say I am the I'm the way and and all yeah. this. There's always the I, which of course normally we detect to be some some personality. But if yeah. in Bhagavan's point uh, point of view, it's, yeah. there's no difference at all. And yeah. it's also a direct path. It's like Christ said, his path is very easy. The yogi is easy to carry but it's a direct narrow path straight and narrow straight and narrow <laughs> <laughs> yes. why the... it is narrow they in the upanishads they talk about this path being the razor's edge mm -hmm. why because we have to remain balanced on the one hand there's thought on the other hand there's manolaya we have to remain balanced in a state of samadhi samadhi balanced state of mind we neither if we go a little this way we get carried away by thoughts if we go a little this way we subside in layer we need to go between thoughts and layer along this straight and narrow this razor's edge path exactly Michael, can, can I can I uh, comment on also I mean that I uh, just want to say that um I was a little bit noting down uh, what you were saying, and uh, this in, in these dialogues uh, with Yaroslav, for example, also it is interesting. I mean that after what you said now, what we have to do is just stop doing anything. <laughs> I mean, just yes, we have to get self-realized immediately. Yes. I mean, uh, it, it it is because everything is absolutely clear. You have to just abandon everything. I mean, give up everything. Whatever comes to your mind, whatever you see, it is just nothing. It is just Maya. Maya constantly keeps you and holds you tightly in her hands. So I mean that whatever you what you have to do, you just ignore. Everything. Yes, but yes, merely just ignoring is not sufficient. Of course, I don't know. Because don't know if we just ignoring, we ignore everything when we fall asleep. We yes. end up in layer. This we, is like what is. We need to stop doing anything. We need to just be. But how can we just be? We need to hold on to ourselves because hold on to our own being. No, what, I, I just, I, I think <laughs> I, I haven't finished. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <whatever>. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Don't She's not finished yet. No, 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 it's, don't be sorry, Michael. It's just me. I mean, that I, maybe I uh, made, this, made this gap. So, I mean, that, um, yes, we have the, the only thing that uh, has uh, uh, some value is I am. This is the only thing. Yeah. And we just, because we don't know what kind of bliss it is, we cannot evaluate. We, can, we don't know. Uh, because we even don't appreciate too much our deep sleep state. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, that uh, even though it is quite great state, 
Yeah. But uh, we just somehow we like that is why we constantly. I mean that uh, it is absolutely. I mean again, just I repeat what you said, but in my own words that uh, um, um, the uh, say I, I lost my uh, this thought. That uh, I mean ah, that is why we constantly are talking about world world about this world because we are so interested in everything. Yes. And whatever it is, I mean that out of what, in a what, anyway, it's world. It's world. Yes. It's, uh, it's something that it's objects. It's something yes. that, we, that we like or don't like, which is absolutely, yes. I think, sim, sim, similar things. Because what you uh, what you say is that uh, if it is snake, then if you approach, it hisses at you. If it is not snake, it is. It is when it is rope. It is. It, it doesn't hiss. But I mean, this hissing, it means whatever. Uh, it can be either uh, something pleasant or something horrible. Both things are absolutely equal because we yeah. react. I yeah. mean that we are interested in uh, in dealing with it. Yes. I mean that uh, it's not just we can just turn turn and uh, just remember that we. Actually, it, it doesn't mean anything. And the greatest bliss is uh, us. I mean, that uh, I. Yes. So, I mean, that, but to just uh, uh, understand that even when we experience something pleasant, that it is still, it is hissing at us. So, we have to just be very much uh, strong. Yes, yes, because sometimes, uh, sometimes the, these uh, uh, horrible things that we uh, have to go through and some of these experiences, ex experiences uh, they are maybe we just, when we have these experiences, we just, okay, say that this world is something, it's crap, it's, we, we, it's something horrible, we don't want to deal with it, it's, mm -hmm. it's something that we don't want. But when something good appears, it is even more horrible in this sense because it is it just catches you immediately. This is yes, how my yes, works. Yes, yes, exactly. So exactly. we have to be, you have to be very uh, strong. I mean, to to somehow resist to yes. So uh, both are hissing. Yes, and we both have to like Pahavad uh, Gita says that uh, uh, what I, at least this is the first source that I clearly read that mm. uh, whatever happens, it is absolutely the same. Yes. So you have to just constantly anyway to, yes. to remember about your real nature. Yeah. And um, because it is, I mean, it is uh, this, uh, in, when we, as I understand, when we uh, experience our real na nature, this is the full satisfaction. It cannot be, we cannot get any more satisfaction from whatever, whatever mm -hmm. object. I mean, we, we, we now talk about very serious thing, actually, because it is satisfaction. It is happiness, like you say, yes, uh, it is, this is the only satisfaction. Yes. Because otherwise, we are like some poor things. Yes. We are constantly like something, some like some, I don't know, even like, um, who knows what. We are just uh, victims of our own imagination, uh, yes. of our own ignorance. We are just yes. victims. Yes. So, I mean, yes. So, and also uh, considering what uh, uh, Yaroslav was saying, that uh, awareness, uh, awareness of everything is uh, like uh, the as if it can be like, like uh, the same as awareness of something, of uh, everything, of uh, every awareness of uh, I am. I mean that. Yes. It, uh, <laughs> it's very nice thing was we heard uh, uh, with you, um 
from Sarvapriyananda, he also uh, he also mentioned someone else from whom he heard this. But it was very beautiful that he said that um, uh, when we are aware of something, even though we, we can call it everything, but we yeah. are still aware, aware of something, it is something anyway. Yes. It's everything. This is still object. Yes. Anyway. So, I mean, whatever beautiful word we can give to him, every, yeah. to everything, it's not. Anyway, it's object. And he says that uh, object is very beautiful, by the way, beautiful magic of language. This uh, object means that it, it objects eternity. It objects, uh, it limits immediately us to these objects. Yes. We are eternal, and all of a sudden we start just attach much importance to some object yes which actually and we it bothers us or i don't know it it, it makes us uh, unhappy or makes us happy or whatever makes us thinking or something i mean that uh, think or just this arises activity of our mind that we are processing all this information so dealing so i mean that uh, uh, this is this uh, whatever we were off I mean, except, except us, if we, uh, if we just 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 being right. So whatever it is, it is object that objects this. Uh, I mean, that uh, denies eternity. Yes. And uh, this limitlessness. Yes. So uh, so I mean that this is very beautiful. Uh, just we found it. <laughs> yes. Very beautiful. So, so long as there are objects, there's a division. There's yes. a subject and object. Yes. yes. Exactly. Yes. But the problem lies not with the objects. What is really objectionable is not the objects, it is the subject. Because it's only in the view of the subject that the objects exist. So right. it is this subject we need to investigate. Mm -hmm. uh, our ego, you mean, yes. Ego, yes. <laughs> Which ego, it, ego itself is a very interesting thing, in my opinion, and uh, I, I, I'm always repeating this thing, that I mean that... Uh, Ego is just, it is just phenomenon in the sense that it, when it looks at us, it is like we are, as we are, I mean this. Yes. When it looks out, it is ego. Yes. I yes. mean, that it is nothing, actually. It is yes. nothing. It's our, our own ability or our own desire to look at something. It, it, is, it, look, it is a chameleon. <laughs> it takes on the color of whatever it looks at. Yes. Mm. If uh, but 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 first of all, you have to be interested in looking at something. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> this, this this interest. This we interest. must be interested not in doing or in knowing. We must be interested just in being. Yes, but but uh, but when we are interested just in being, we are not ego. No, no, because the very nature of ego is to be interested only in other things. Exactly. Mm. So ego, like uh, Pakavan says, it is some some phantom that doesn't exist. Yes. yes it is, yes. That is why Bhagavan says grace is absolutely essential. That mm -hmm. is the power to turn back within cannot come from ego because the very nature of ego is to go outwards. So some power greater than ego is necessary to pull it back within. That is the power of grace. Yes, that, that grace is not something other than ourselves. We ourselves are that grace. Grace is our real nature. Yes, this is what I want to say. That this uh, also this question of grace, it's an interesting question because it uh, 
somehow it sounds interestingly as if something exists again uh, separately from us. I mean. Yes, yes. Which But is not. That, that is the usual understanding yes. in, in, in religions where they take God to be other than themselves. They take grace to be something that has come from God to us. Yes. But according to Bhagavan, God is nothing other than ourselves. And God and his grace are one. So he, grace is what is always shining in our heart as I. But that, that, and the nature of grace is that, that is the nature, since God is ourself, since Bhagavan is ourself, he, he doesn't see, uh, see us as something other than himself. So he loves us as himself. And that love he has for us is what, what, Puts the, sows the seed of love in our heart to turn back within. So as Bhagavan said, Guru is pushing from outside and pulling from within. And without that push and pull from Guru, we are eternally damned. Yes. Uh, Because the nature of ego is to always go outwards. It looks like, um, it looks like the very our desire and uh, desire to continue practice and mm. efforts that we put into uh, practicing. This is yeah. grace. This yeah, is grace. but that is not really desire, because no, desire, no, no, no. desire is for something other than ourselves. This is love. It, uh -huh. we, we, we cannot turn within with desire. We can only turn within with love, because desire will always take the mind outwards. Yes, It's essentially... The desire and love are the same. They both, but the, the outwardly directed love is called desire. The uh -huh. inwardly directed desire is called love. Yes, it's too, it's too, it's too gross word to describe. Yes, yes. <laughs> Because desire is all about getting for me, for me, whereas yes, love is all about giving me complete surrender. Yes, even uh, actually, even I was uh, uh, using this word desire. It, it it is not even I didn't somehow put this get, getting into mm. uh, because I mean that uh, it is so it is so in my opinion uh, it is so uh, hard to to get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and also, uh, it, it's I mean the reason I distinguish love and desire, it's not ultimately the words don't matter. Even Bhagavan talks about desire. He says in verse 60 of Akshramai, in me who had no love for you, you gave me de desire for you. That is, you gave me that liking to know you, to, to give myself to you. So we, we, we generally, when we use desire, we're talking about getting something else for me. Uh, that's why I made that distinction. But we can... We, we have to use, we have to be, so long as we understand what we're talking about, the words we use don't matter. Yes. Yes, because even I use this desire without any... Yeah, yeah. but even Bhagavan has used it, so... Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to get something from, I, I, it's, it's, so, it's so difficult to get that something from, the, I mean, that you have to really... Yeah. Try hard to and not um, trying to get something like uh, in a material sense, but you understand that it, it it's much uh, uh, much um, more uh, subtle and beautiful something that yes. it's not it cannot be grasped by just yes. desire. 
if we desire to get God, there's one price to be paid. We have to give ourselves. We can God will give himself to us. God is a very, very calculative businessman. He will give himself to us only if we give ourselves to him. So if we have desire for God, we must be willing to give ourselves entirely. Which is quite, I have to say, maybe, uh, I don't know, of course, we all want immediately to be satisfied in full. I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> to get this self-realization. Because we, we all want that. The yes. problem is, in spite of all our learning, all our studying, you all are saying, oh, I understand Bhagavan's teachings. The truth is, our understanding is still very superficial. Mm -hmm. Because if we had really understood Bhagavan's teachings, our mind would not be going outwards. Exactly. Why does our mind go outwards? Because we still believe that happiness is to be obtained in things other than ourselves. We are still, we are still, how is it, how to call, we are still so involved in reacting to this world. Yes, yes. Well, the, the way things are going at the moment in the world, it doesn't convince that much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a, it's not the most appealing world no. at the moment. No. But, 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 by the way, Michael, what what if I noticed also interesting thing when you read news, for example, and Yaroslav understands also, and when you read about all these horrible things that are going on there in Ukraine, yes. when you read what is going really on, when you read what they do to people. Oh God! You, I I take it's it's impossible not to react. It's impossible. You just oh, yeah. you just it's uh, you it, cannot. It, yeah, you yeah. are ready to cry every every time. It's, yes, yeah, it, it is. It's really it's 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 yeah. Incredible. It's, and how 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 to just abandon? How to just say it doesn't it doesn't it it's not going on. It I it, it, I, we, I understand. I understand everything. I mean, yeah. but, but this is this is the this hissing when world is hissing at us. This is yeah. How it also hissing. Yeah, yes. we, we are very much attached uh, to these things. But we need to understand when we look at the world, so many horrible things are happening. Yes, yes. yes. But this is all our own creation. It, all this appears because we have risen as ego. Yeah. world is full of horrible things. There's. If we look at human beings, if this one species, we are capable of the greatest acts of love and kindness and caring and also the most horrendous things we do to each other. A war is a time that brings out both. Mm -hmm. yes. we, we, we see the most horrible crimes being committed. Women, the maternity hospitals being bombed, uh, children being killed, old, old people being killed indiscriminately horrible, horrible things. But at the same time, we see so much kindness, so much caring. Exactly. How the people of, Ho of Holland, of, sorry, of Poland, have opened their arms yes. and accepted more than a thousand, a million refugees. It shows human nature is capable of terrible things and also great things. But all these opposites, good and evil, kindness and uh, and selfishness or everything it all appears only in the view of ego only when we rise as ego do are all these things um, seemingly existent so the solution the ultimate solution is only to turn within however however 
however beautiful we find the world or however ugly, however horrifying we find the world, the solution is the same. So long as there's beauty, there will be ugliness. So long as there's kindness, there will be cruelty. These, this is the nature of the world. The only solution, the place where we are beyond all these pairs of opposites is only deep in our own heart. And after all, accepting that it's all ajata and nothing. Ultimately, yes, yes. Nothing but has to, happened, to, it seems to happen. Merely, merely saying it's all an ajata, nothing even seems to happen. Nothing happens at all. <laughs> the, the seeming is only in the view of ego. In yeah. ajata, there's no ego at all. That yeah. is the ultimate truth. Yeah. But in order to experience that ultimate truth, we need to look within. We need to find that within ourselves. Merely saying, oh, everything is it's all a jata, there's nothing, it doesn't solve the problem. So long as we, so long as there's one to talk about a jata, there is still a problem. It's like all these sayings, all is mental and all is this and that. It means they're just sayings which are true, but don't help much if we don't. Yeah, really yeah. Well, like we, we, we need to consider the practical implications of philosophy is useful only to the extent that it has that but we apply it in practice so we need to understand the practical implication of all these things tatvamasi sounds very nice but what is the practical application the practical implication if i am that then what am i that is what we need to investigate it's normally missed that point yes yes stops by this saying and everybody understands it but nobody practices it yeah 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 because it's the very nature of the mind it's the very nature of ego to go outwards mm. that's why we it's only that's why Bhagavan said bhakti is the mother of jnana we need to have all consuming love in order to turn within and surrender ourselves turning within is the easiest of all things but we need to be willing. We need to be wholeheartedly willing to turn within. But why, why we, it seems to us to be difficult to hold on to self-attentiveness is that we have so much liking to hold on to other things. We're not willing to let go of everything else. As Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Uludunapadu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, investigating what this ego is, is giving up everything. So until we are willing to give up everything, we cannot investigate ourselves. Or our investigation will be very, very shallow, very superficial investigation. Investigation can become deep only to the extent to which we are willing to let go of everything else. That is why grace is so important, because it has to be a power greater than ego to pull ego within. And that, but that grace is not something that comes from outside. Grace works through us. In the grace is what manifests in us in the form of love to turn within. But that love to turn within doesn't come from ego. It comes from our source. It comes from Bhagavan. Uh, be my guest, Len. You have yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Hi, Michael. Hi, hi. 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 Uh, yes, can I just say, like, uh, you just you you just said that we have to willing to look in, and so yeah. when we in this in this situation, like uh, we see lots of uh, wars and uh, lots of uh, challenging situations, and it can it. It it also can be an opportunity to the the, the desire for more happiness. So, yeah. yeah so that it, it. I mean, if everything is good and you have a beautiful house, you have a beautiful family, everything is fine. And uh, I mean, you will be too satisfied with your situation, and you yeah. you will. Lose the interest into why I need to look in. I'm yeah. I'm pretty good. I'm fine. Like yeah, yeah. you, you healthy body, and you you don't have any disease. And I asked several of my friends. They are like, "What's the what's the use to look in? I'm pretty good." So yeah, I yeah. mean, if you if you are in a difficult situation, if people really suffering, and maybe it will like you have more desire to looking for. Yeah. What what the world is? What is what, what is happening? And is that real? Or I, yeah, and yeah. I talk lots of people in China and with the quarantine, you know, very yeah. bad quarantine. And then lots of people, uh, they would they would tell me like it's it's like a dream. I don't know if it's real. So I mean, the situation really make them think. Uh, is that yeah. real? The world, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, maybe it's a it's an opportunity to give us a, a chance to look in. It, it is. Yeah. It is. But it be all, all these things are, are two edged swords. When when things like this, when terrible things are happening in the world, that draws our attention out more. Mm. What's happening in the world? What? Oh, this is terrible! Terrible. We, we, our mind is so caught up in all these terrible things, but we, so we we can respond either in, in one of two ways. Either our mind goes out more and more to be more and more concerned about these things, or yeah, yes, yes, think more deeply. Anyway, mm. whatever be whether our life is a peaceful life or a life with a life of wealth or a life of poverty, a life of peace or a life of war and conflict and strife or whatever it is, this life is temporary. We're all going mm. to die one day anyway. E even if we live in very peaceful times, terrible diseases come. I mean, even mm. if everyone is very nice to you and yeah. everything, if a disease yeah. comes, they, they, yeah. so you, you never they, know. <laughs> they, they, there's so yeah. much potential for suffering yes. in this life. Yes, yes. It's important to recognize this. Yeah. But it's true what you say, but, but when we face difficulties in life, that is opportunities, but we have to make use of those opportunities. Yes. In the Mahabharata, after the, after the war is over, when um, uh, the, the Panchapandavas, they were victorious, they, they, they won the war, they claimed the kingdom uh, that was rightfully theirs, then Krishna said to them and to their mother, any mm. boon you wish to pray for, I will give you. And Kunti, Kunti Devi, the, the mother of the Pancha Pandavas, she prayed to Krishna, always keep us in hardship, always give us troubles. And he said, what, what a foolish thing you are asking for. She mm. said, no, only when we're in trouble, we're always thinking of you.
So yeah. I ask nothing. It's beautiful. Else, you always keep yeah. us in. So it, it is the adversity in life is a blessing, mm. but we have to take advantage of that blessing. Mm. Mm. It's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> right, Michael, can I add? Yes. The, the also interesting thing is that uh, when uh, uh, horrible times uh, change uh, uh, to good times. Yes. Was uh, it, uh, for example, I mean, when, when you went through something horrible and you have something beautiful, uh, it's like, by the way, it's like, uh, uh, it's, um, it is a good thing to have this, uh, yes, and in Orthodox, by the way, religion, they also, uh, uh, this is saint people, they were asking for some, some troubles. To, yeah. to, so they constantly are turned to God. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, this, uh, for example, uh, it doesn't work for, for mature people. Yes, it works like this. Yes. But when people are not mature in, no, enough, no. Yeah. Uh, there is a very also interesting thing, very also interesting um, challenge, challenge, good times. Yes. Because, I mean, like uh, Scarlett O'Hara in uh, this... Uh, uh, um, Go on with the wind. With the wind. With the wind, yes. When, yeah. But when, when there was this civil war in America, yeah. and they were going through all these horrible things, and uh, she belonged to a very rich family, and she when she saw um, what happened after this war, she decided that she will never be hungry again anymore, never. Yeah. And what and, and uh, uh, she puts put uh, put all her uh, uh, energy to build some material happiness for for herself for yeah. for, for, you, for your her and uh, her family. So I mean that it means that uh, uh, um, like Gita says, we have to be uh, it uh, whether it is horrible times or good times. It is always changes. We have uh, these um, uh, the challenges. Yeah. We have to always um, remember that uh, that it is still it is still like a trial. Like some someone is uh, is uh, tests tests you. Yes. Uh, yes. Just you have to do to, to understand how how you behave. I mean, in these uh, times and when you have something bad and when you have something good. Yes, this is also yes. because, uh, uh, like I previously said, that when you have something horrible, you don't like this world immediately. I mean, that yes, yes. it's like a dream, it's something horrible. When something good starts, no, it's everything is great already. It's yes. it's how oh, it's beautiful dream. I want it. Yes. It's okay. Yes. I mean, but it is a big challenge also. This is a good test. By the way, now we've experienced it a little bit also fleeing from this. Fleeing, fleeing from Ukraine also yeah that um, this all this talk and think thinking that how spiritual we are and we are doing this and this yeah. practice and you you see how lousy you are actually <laughs> but what is a very good mirror to us yeah so, <laughs> a reminder that yes check it out how spiritual you yes, are at the yes. moment but it also it keeps you alert that you immediately understand that now it's the time to really turn inward and it, it's a, like it's a constant lesson to be learned yeah, yeah. and um, it it's a really good thing in this sense but it also shows that your the normal nature how to react comes yeah, up yeah. quite yeah. fast you start hating this or you don't like this and you yeah, want this yeah, and yeah. you're dissatisfied with the common uh, current situation you want this and that 
first you say these things and think about these things, but afterwards you will see how how you again went like that, and then you can turn back inward. Yeah, so yeah. actually, it's a very good teacher in this yes, sense. Yes, yes. And plus, and plus, everything changes. Mm. I mean, yeah. all of a sudden, we have to understand. Really, it is. It is like this. Yeah, Those yes. who didn't go go through this yet, they maybe don't understand this. I mean, that when uh, when everything all of a sudden changes, it changes dramatically. For example, uh, I mean that uh, what can be what what is the use of the world that can all of a sudden change so dramatically? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, yes. It's, it's constantly it's fleeting. It's uh, nothing is stable. Now, nothing, you can nothing. On anything, just on anything. When, when we, we we are all in some one way or another looking for security in this yes, world, exactly. but nothing is secure. Nothing yes. is secure. It's yes. not. See, this world is, it, it, as you say, it's a, the world is so fleeting, so changeable. If we look for security outside ourselves, we'll be disappointed. Mm -hmm. The true security can be found only in our own heart. That alone is the place of refuge for us. Mm. And you see, regarding what you were saying, there's a beautiful verse, well, there are 108 beautiful verses, actually. Among the 108 beautiful verses, one of them is Mukila Mungatum Mukura Mahadane Tukianain Daralaranachala. That means, do not be like a mirror held before a noseless man. <laughs> embrace wrap me in your, in your grace and uplift me. So, this, the experiences we go through in life are like a mirror. They show us our own, our own defects, our own shortcomings, and particularly intense experiences or experiences that have a tendency to pull our mind outwards with greater vigor. Achieve a mind goes outwards not because of the external things, it's because of our own vasanas, but, but, but those, those, um, those, those experiences that make us think that, that makes inclined to yield to our vasanas and go outwards, those are, uh, are like a mirror held before a noseless man. We see our own defects, mm -hmm. but that's all the more motivation to turn within. Exactly. <laughs> because we can be uplifted only by sinking within. And this is a learning of these teachings. Little by little, you learn more, of course. At first, after the first reactions, which is, of course, uh, some counteraction or negativity or anger or whatever after that goes away and and this fast temper of mine goes away then i realized that not yes it was a great teaching and actually that brought me back to the yeah. path and kept me in course and i'm also always grateful and happy about this realization of it, that it was a great teaching after yes. I, but but it, somehow it takes many lifetimes as it seems to it's, understand immediately yes, that, yes. That not to go out so yes. so it takes experience of course yes. and, and plus Bhagavan we, is a very patient teacher yes. <laughs> he, plus, he gives us time to learn the lesson yeah. and plus we always forget that uh, this is also a very important thing this, that is why we cannot uh, learn so quickly uh, because we I don't trust Bhagavan in the sense that he, what, whatever he does, it is for our good. And mm. uh, that we uh, have to somehow don't uh, keep this luggage uh, on our heads. 
Yes. So, this is also this is this is this is also when you have when you want to control even when, when control is even when you um, um, react so much to external things. Of yeah. course, uh, if uh, of course you of course okay you react, but at least don't think that you do something you, this is you who decide something who yes. can change something mm -hmm. because it is great that for example uh, it is it, it will turn to good but what is also interesting thing even though we want we want world uh, peace in the world we want, yeah. want these things but i always remember and when they for example say that we will rebuild ukraine it will be again good and that I want it with all my heart. I just want to stop this absolute madness. But mm. I always remember those who have already died. Yes, yes. What kind of world? And we, we, what is interesting, we continue talking about world. What world? For whom? Yes. For those who are still alive and will live, it's yes. okay. But yes. for those who died, what kind of world? What? Yes, yes. What can we give to them? Yes, yes. Nothing. They went to, to such horrible tortures. And yes. what kind of world we can give them? Yes. So, I mean, that, okay, we will be talking about that we we can give this peace and world to some, uh, to children that will survive, that can yeah. survive and so on. But what about those who died? So many children have died or so many children have been horribly, horribly maimed. Yes, but idea is what, what? What are we talking at all about? Yes, what, yes, exactly. What, what? 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 Everything is lost for them. I yes. mean, yes, yes, sense. yeah. I know, I know, mm -hmm. I know exactly what. You... This is uh, this is what this is what the, this thing that we again we take all responsibility on us that we decide something that we will yes. build something for yes. whom we will build something. Yes, and I we mean, will be here forever to enjoy it. Yes. yes. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> we, we forget how quickly this life passes. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is very, yes, this is very funny things, actually. This is how uh, people are so childish. Yes, yes, yes. So, yes, it's interesting. So we have to just understand how that uh, everything is absolutely temporary, everything is absolutely fleeting. And uh, the only thing that uh, uh, we have, uh, the only treasure, treasure that we have, it's Pavan's teachings, so that's it. Yes, yes. It's like this. And Bhagavan's teachings are treasure precisely because they're pointing at the one thing that is unchanging, the one thing that is real, yes. that is I am. That is the greatest treasure of all. Yes. That is the treasure Bhagavan refers to in another verse of Akshara Teda Dutranal Tiruvaral he refers to Arunachara, great treasure of grace found without seeking. That is the great treasure, that, uh, that awareness that is always shining in our heart as I. May I also ask a question, just yes. a first a little bit of observation, which uh, Lou and Olena did uh, about uh, uh, horrible things uh, happening in our world that uh, very much 
reminds me uh, words of some Greek philosophers who say that uh, the pain is uh, the beginning of philosophy <laughs> because yes. people start thinking about such uh, lofty and uh, yes. high things only after they have experienced some pain or deprivation or yes. Yes. such like things. Yes. Uh, maybe it's the way it works. And uh, my question is uh, about uh, one uh, a particular verse from uh, Guru Vachaka Kovai and uh, more specifically about uh, Sadhu Om's commentary. Mm. If, if I may read it, it's not, yes. uh, it's, it's one sentence uh, yes. verse. It is verse uh, 267. Uh, this in bold script, uh, it says, uh, this natural self-consciousness of mere existence without any sense of duality, is the supreme silence, which is glorified as the perfection of jnana, and which cannot be known by the ego, the foolish demon nature. And in particular, I'm uh, interested in this uh, very strong language, uh, which uh, where uh, Bhagavan or Muruganar, uh, who wrote uh, that was, I'm not sure, uh, but uh, calling uh, ego the demon nature. And further, Uh, Sadhu Om uh, in his commentary writes about uh, just one more, uh, two more uh, short sentences. The eightfold cities depend upon the functioning of the ego, which is here said to be a demon nature. These cities are therefore demonic powers and not divine powers, as people generally believe. And that uh, these words. Uh, No, this this commentary of uh, Sadhu Om is almost uh, word for word uh, what I have read many time, times in Byzantine church fathers. <laughs> <laughs> It's almost just... Yeah. Uh, and whence such language? Uh, were they just were they somehow was Sadhu Om acquainted with uh, Christian theology why, why did he uh, use that language and that strong language um, because I, it, it sounds very uh, very uh, like in Orthodox Christianity they use uh, this very same language about <laughs> those very same phenomena well yes um, I, I don't think Sadhu Om would knew about orthodox uh, theology at all or knew anything about the, the church fathers. Um, he would have known a little bit about Bible and so on. This word demon, actually, um, in, in Bhagavan has used this word. In verse 25 of Uludunapadu, the formless phantom ego, it's usually translated, but that word phantom is pay. Pay means a ghost, phantom, demon, fiend, mm. evil spirit. That is the meaning mm -hmm. of the term. So that, that term, um, uh, well, I, I think I've usually, in most, con usually I translate it as uh, phantom, but sometimes I point out that but it's also got that underlying meaning. Phantom doesn't just mean, uh, in this context, doesn't mean just a ghost. It's an evil spirit. This ego mm -hmm. is an evil spirit, Bhagavan refers to it. And he, in Akshramalai, verse 71, he says, Paitanam Vida, he refers to the ego nature as Paitanam, the, the, the demon nature. So that my demon nature uh, may leave, you 
you you uh, seized me. You caught hold of me as a as a as a unleaving demon. He refers to our natural as a demon, <laughs> but he, obviously there it is metaphorically. Aranatcha is, is the great demon of grace, the, the demon that will never let go of us. That is, the ego is a small demon. When this big demon comes and takes possession of us, then only will this small demon uh, go away. So he said, uh, 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 seizing me as a, as, a, as, as a great demon, you seizing me, uh, you, you made me, a demoniac, one who is possessed of a demon. There he's referring to the demon of, uh, of uh, the, the madness of love for him. So Bhagavan uses very strong language. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, why did uh, Sadhu Om mention Siddhis in that commentary? Is it to illustrate uh, or give example of, a, Maybe uh, I, of, of I an inflated ego? I, what, what is the verse number? Uh, the number is uh, 200-267, Guru Vacha Kakovai. Okay, I'm not quite sure. Um, what is the previous verse? Oh, because he's... Um, he, because he talks there about a killer... In the previous verse, a killer parashakti, the supreme, the almighty power. And what was the previous... Um, They, they, it must be to do with the context in which it comes. My assumption yeah, was... Yeah, because in the, next, in the previous verse, 266, he talks about a killer parashakti, and in the following verse, 268, he talks about a killer parashakti. So because of the context of, the, of power, mm -hmm. the, the, the cities are just false powers. They're just demonic powers. The, the true power, for example, in... 266, he says, the self-consciousness which shines after the destruction of the, of the root thought, the identification with any of the three bodies as I, is the, uh, is the almighty power who resides as I in the heart of all created beings. Um, uh, and then in this 267, this natural self-consciousness Uh, of uh, mere existence without any sense of duality, the supreme silence, which is glorified by scriptures as the perfection of jnana, which cannot be known by ego, the foolish demon nature. So he's connecting this verse with the previous and next verse, though the previous and next verse don't directly talk about uh, cities, they're talking about power. What is the real power? Mm -hmm. And uh, could uh, these cities be uh, described or explained as a product of a very much inflated ego? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Bhagavan wrote one verse, I think, I think it's a translation of some verse in Sanskrit, in which he said, the, um, the juggler, the, the, the stage magician, he deludes the world without deluding himself. But see, my son, the, the Siddha uh, deludes not only the world, he deludes himself. Because the, the Siddhi, the, the Siddhas, those who have acquired Siddhis, they, they think that they have really gained some real powers. 
But both mm-hmm. powers are just an illusion. They're not real at all. It reminds me of uh, the type of liars who start lying to others and then eventually start believing <laughs> their own lies. <laughs> we, we've got a classic example in, in the Kremlin. <laughs> yeah, someone yeah. who, is, <laughs> who yeah. has been telling a lie for so long, he's convinced so many people and now he's convinced himself. Yes, exactly. And he got himself in a hole. Yes. So it's the nature. It's the nature of uh, the more we, 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 we tell a lie, the more we begin to believe what, uh, what because it's the mind that creates that, that, that is, if we can convince ourselves of anything, if we want to. Mm-hmm. Even I am this body. Well, yes, that's, that's the biggest lie of all. <laughs> but even, well, this topic uh, or uh, like uh, subject uh, or theme uh, mentioned by you, so that uh, Bhagavan's path is uh, direct and like straightforward. And it uh, appears to be even more straightforward, more direct than what uh, we Uh, may find in uh, traditional like Western religion, religions like Christianity or Judaism, or maybe in some forms of Hinduism where a person gets uh, like where the most direct uh, experience or uh, manner of getting knowledge is like revelation, like divine revelation, like yeah. Moses uh, got uh, from yeah, the burning yeah. bush or or apostles got from Jesus, uh, yes. or whatever, or in, uh, in various Hindu stories when someone is talking with yes. Krishna as yes. a body yes. <laughs> and talking, to, just talking yes. to him yes. like a human. But in this, in case of revelations, there are two, um, two agents, yes, the one who is giving revelation and the other who is receiving revelation. Yes. In case of Bhagavan, uh, it is uh, even a greater shortcut, so to speak. Yes, yes. yes. So you don't have uh, this division. Yes. Bhagavan's path, not only the practice most direct, (laughs) but the expression of it is most direct. That is, the teachings are expressed in the most direct manner. What is said in, in other religions They often, we find things in, um, in Christianity, in Sufism, in different religions, even in different, different types of Indian, I mean, different spiritual paths within in India. They, they all have, seem to be pointing at more or less the same thing, but they're doing so in a very roundabout way, whereas Bhagavan goes straight to the point. What is the point? That the whole thing is, what is real is only ourself. The problem lies in our, in our false, aw- in our awareness of ourself as something other than what we actually are. So the, the, we ourselves have a problem, we ourselves have a solution to the problem. So but I don't think it has ever been, not only has Bhagavan shown the direct path so clearly and shown why it's the direct path but the the way he's shown it is such a in such a direct and simple way 
for normal Christians. In, 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 in the more traditional, in the older Advaitic texts, they tend to talk a lot about Brahman. Bhagavan actually doesn't use the term Brahman much. Yes, he does use the term that referring to Brahman. He does sometimes talk about Brahman. But Bhagavan focuses on Atmaswarupa, our real nature, on I. Because what is Brahman? Brahman is nothing other than I. Once we've understood that Brahman is nothing other than I, we can dispense with the word Brahman. We don't go around saying Brahman is now talking, Brahman is doing this, Brahman is doing that. We talk about I. I is the, Bhagavan said, I is the natural name of everyone, including God, including Brahman. So I is the most direct term to use to refer to what is real. For Christians and normal Western thinking, this is somehow, I always felt like blasphemy, that what do you mean you are God? But on the other hand, if we think that they, on the same time, they say God is everything, God is all, there's nothing but God, but then we must be God also because <laughs> yes, God is yes. everything. We can't be excluded from this. <laughs> uh, once a Christian missionary came to Bhagavan and said, is it not blasphemy to say I am God? Bhagavan simply replied, is it not blasphemy to say I'm anything other than God? <laughs> because if you say you're something other than God, you're limiting God. Yeah. You're, you're saying the infinite is not infinite. Yes. So the greatest, the, the greatest blasphemy is to claim a separate existence. We claim that separate existence. As soon as we rise as ego, we have claimed a separate existence. So the very rising of ego is blasphemy. So we are all guilty of blasphemy. Yes. Every moment of our life, we are blaspheming. Yes. We cease to blaspheme only when we are swallowed by him. We are ye with a little little faith. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> faith, what is true faith? Faith is clarity. Our problem is our lack of clarity. Why do we lack clarity? The clarity is always there in our heart, but we're always looking outwards. If we want to increase that clarity, if we want to increase our faith, we have to look within. Faith is not mere belief. It is an inner clarity that, is, that shines in our heart. That inner clarity is what is otherwise called grace. And we can yield ourselves to grace only by turning within. I somehow believe that this faith in its true sense is also in a way enough because if we truly believe Bhagavan's words and Bhagavan's teachings and have extreme faith, and I mean, absolute faith yeah. that we are actually, yeah. I is Bhagavan, then actually in this sense, faith is all that is necessary. But like Christ, yeah. I just mentioned that ye with little faith, we don't have faith for this, this, yeah. uh, this Bhagavan's teaching or Bhagavan. Yeah. Yeah. In general. We don't have faith because we're always looking outside. We're turning our back on the light. How can, you, how can you have clarity when you're always turning away from the light? If you want to have clarity, you need to turn back within. The clarity is always there in our heart, but we never look back within to see it. Mm. And it's from clarity alone that true faith is born. Exactly. <clears throat> I, I used to be told when I was brought up as a Catholic, 
I, I used to say, I'm willing to have faith, but I want to have a reason to have faith. I was told, no, faith is a leap in the dark. <laughs> now I've come to know from Bhagavan, faith is a leap in the light. Yes. Only to the extent to which we turn within towards the light will, we have, will true faith uh, blossom in our heart. How can there be faith in darkness? Faith can only be when there's only in clarity. There's everything, only when everything becomes clear is there true faith. Mm. Michael, sorry, sorry. Uh, uh, Michael, is it enough uh, to, to uh, uh, do self-investigation? I mean, uh, not to like uh, ancient science and not only uh, this tradition to just, um, uh, I mean, not, not think not think much about what. I mean that uh, only doing this, um, this practice, uh, is it enough to, that you naturally uh, start somehow be not that interested in this world, in the in world and everything this which is out. I mean, um, is it because I mean that uh, all yogis, for example, they lead this ascetic lives and uh, and so on. I mean, maybe I, somehow I I just think that uh, this practice maybe it is just absolutely enough to. It, I mean, this, there is a natural process of purification. Yes. I mean, but, very, very, very strong, very powerful process. Yes. That you even don't need anything else, maybe. What, what is required is not just to lose interest in other things. We need to have all-consuming interest to know and to be what we actually are. To the extent to which we have interest to know ourselves, our interest in other things will drop off. But the, if we merely give up interest in other things, we end up in layer. It is, that is why Bhagavan's path is a very positive path. Bhagavan didn't ask us to give up thoughts. He asked us to hold on to, the, to, to I. To the extent to which we hold on to I, we are thereby turning our back on thoughts. Thoughts cannot exist without us attending to them. So we automatically solve the problem with thoughts by holding on to I. Whereas if we're trying to get rid of thoughts, our attention is on the thoughts. So rather than putting things negatively, but we have to lose interest in any other things, let's put it positively. We have to gain all-consuming interest to know and to be ourselves. The interest in other things will automatically drop off without our even noticing it. How, how to go west, leave the east. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Yaroslav wanted to say. Yes. Just I wanted just to comment on those Christian missionaries who thought that that would be a blasphemy. Mm. But maybe uh, those were some exotic Protestant ones or not very educated because in Christianity... Uh, in Orthodox and in Catholic, and uh, I'm sure in Lutheran and Anglican, they all uh, like um, honor and recognize uh, Saint Athanasius from Alexandria, who, who told that 
the son of god became man so that we become god <laughs> so yes, yes. and and there is saying in uh, like among orthodox uh, fathers that uh, god became man so that man becomes god like divine like yeah, yes. divinized uh, uh there is also theosis and there might be some bridge between christianity and uh, hinduism yes. in these uh, teachings but that is not uh, a great focus i would say because yes. Uh, yes. people are mostly focused on uh, rituals on belonging to some church uh, on just expressing their feelings about jesus uh, externally uh, just and, and, and you don't know what is in, inside those people yeah and it's taking the same communion in all religions people, yeah. <laughs> most people's minds are outward going uh, yes jesus um, himself i think if, uh, i'm not very I, i can't remember the bible so well but i think when he was in the garden of gethsemane <laughs> when he was praying to god he prayed but that They they may be one in 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 me as I am one in you, something to that effect. So he was praying, but we should be one with him. Mm -hmm. So uh, it it is there, but uh, people interpret things in their own way. If people people don't see what they don't want to see. Yes. And even the attention, even in everyday life, uh, people's attention is uh, like, uh, I noticed it, uh, for example, when I worked at a company where there were many people and some say when uh, we looked at some photograph uh, or whatever, and you notice that different people uh, notice different things according to their inclinations. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and, and even... Uh, A very great discovery to me was, uh, I don't know, but I noticed that, for example, men and women notice often very different uh, things and pay attention to different things. What yes. a man would overlook and never, ever notice, a woman will always notice yes, and vice yes. versa. Exactly. <laughs> What exactly. A, a, a woman may overlook. And, yes. Uh, a man will notice that <laughs> in yes, the first yes. place. Yes. And uh, And even on individual level, just you, even humor, kind of jokes, you say, say one kind of joke, uh, one type of people react to that. Yeah. Another kind of joke, another people yeah, yeah, <laughs> react yeah. to that. So yeah. it's uh, like something we want to see, <laughs> maybe. That's it, why oh. there will always be so many different views. See politics. You yeah. had some people are more left-wing, some people are more right-wing. Each believes that their view is correct. But what they do, every, all believe that, uh, that is, some politicians may be in politics just for their, what they can get out of it. But, but a lot of, even among politicians, there are a lot of sincere people on both sides of, uh, of the argument. They, they are just seeing things from a different perspective. It's the same in philosophy. There are so many different philosophical views. Each one is seeing from their own view. Same in religion, same in everything. We we see we are all seeing the world through our own colored glasses. But if we want to see the truth, we need to stop looking through the mind. We need to look back within to the heart. There, there is only one view. So long as we look outwards, there are so many different views. In this Easter time, there was I was trying to watch some uh, religious church ceremony and. Uh, 
I just talked with Olena about it that uh, I look, watched for a half an hour or so and uh, all, what the priests were saying from the Bible, the words were correct, but you can somehow see and sense that they don't understand what they're saying at all. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's because of the tradition, tradition that you, you shouldn't even try to understand. You just believe in these words. Yeah. But if there's words like, for instance, it wasn't there, I think, but if they if said like I, Christ said that I and Father are one, yeah. it, it's, it's repeated or something like this, but there's no idea that you have to understand what it means. Yes, yes. It, it's just like this was this 2,000 years ago, this one person said something. But yeah. it's like neglecting the, the gems of these great words and teachings, yes. which we have had for thousands of years, and we haven't ever really gone deep what yeah, they might yes. mean. <clears throat> they're not. They're not neglecting. They're just not seeing. They're, they're... Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, we, we. It is only grace that gives us to see these things, to recognize the the deeper meaning in these things. Mm. And I, I, I have to say, without Bhagavan's teaching, no, we I, wouldn't I, understand at all. <laughs> I couldn't see anything yeah. about yeah. any little things. Yes. <clears throat> it's 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 like a having glasses for the first time in your life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Teaching Bhagavad's teachings, you can with those glasses you can understand all these religions. Yes, yes. Better. <clears throat> yeah, and we can understand the how everything has its place. All these different beliefs, they're all appropriate for people at certain stages of spiritual development. Mm. Definitely. Uh, Michael, Ultimately, you... the truth is beyond all words. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, Michael, what do you think about this fourth, not uh, really a question, but uh, well, maybe it is a question that I sent you. What do you think? Do you want to talk anything about this? Okay, I'll, I'll just well, talk briefly. Yeah. Yeah, the, the question is, Sadom and your translation project and the main scriptures you worked on, how did this process begin and what was it like? Um, well, it's, it would be a long story, but yeah. um, <laughs> after I was fortunate, when I first came to Tiruvannamalai, I had heard a little bit about Bhagavan, but I knew very little about him. But someone had given me a... I'd, when I was in Sri Lanka, someone had showed me uh, Arthur Osborne's biography of Bhagavan, Ramana Maharshi and the Path of Self-Knowledge. And what I read in that, what, what that person suggested I read was about Bhagavan's death experience. So I read that. That kindled my curiosity. So I wanted to come, but I didn't really, I knew very little about Bhagavan, as I say. The first thing I read when I came was uh, a translation of Who Am I? I can't say I understood it very deeply, but as soon as I read it, I, I knew, ah, this is what I've been looking for. But previously, I had been looking for something, but not really knowing what I was looking for. I'd gone to Vipassana meditation course, uh, course and I'd gone to so many ashrams and um, different uh, uh, holy places in the Himalayas. I, I knew I was looking, and I was reading so many different books, I knew I was looking for something, but I didn't really know what I was looking for until I read Who Am I? Then that was so clear to me. Ah, this is it. So then I decided that, yes, I want to stay here. But 
the main thing for me then was how to put this into practice. When I read many of the books that were available in those days, nobody seemed to clearly explain what is the practice. Arthur Osborne says, meditate on the heart on two digits to write from the center of chest. That never seemed to me to be correct. It just didn't make sense to me. Um, then there was, uh, shortly after I came, I made friends with a young Malaysian who was uh, also staying in the ashram. He, had, he told me that he had this book, Path of Sri Ramana, but he had been lent by Sadhu Om. And who was the author of the book. And he said, it's a very nice book. So I was interested. I said, does it explain about the practice? He said, yes, it explains very nicely. So I said, oh, I want to read that. And he said, okay, I will ask whether I can lend it to you after I finish reading it. Um, and then one day he said to me, I'm going to meet Sadhuam. Would you like to come? I said, oh, yes, yes. So I accompanied him. And when I met Sadom, I found actually I'd already met him. I met him one, uh, I met him a few days before one morning when I was going around the hill, but I didn't know who he was at the time. Um, so then shortly soon after that, I, I read Pathe Sri Ramana. And um, what struck me most of all is the word self-attention. That made sense of everything. This is what the practice is. We have to attend to ourselves. So... Whenever I had any questions, I would come to Sadhuam, but I was a bit shy, so I didn't like to come without any questions. So I sometimes used to try to think of a question just to come and talk to him, because whenever I came, so many very useful, very precious gems were falling from his mouth, so to speak. Then I, I came to know that he was writing a Tamil uh, prose rendering of Guru Kovai. And I knew that that was being serialized, a translation by Professor Swaminathan was being serialized in the mountain path. So I started reading through all the back issues of mountain path, all the translations by Professor Swaminathan. And whenever, whenever it wasn't clear, I would then go and ask Sadom, because I thought this is a very good opportunity to go and, and question him. So any verse that wasn't entirely clear to me, I would go and ask him. Then one day he said to me, often when, he, when I asked him, he said, oh, it doesn't quite mean that. He, he told me what the correct meaning is. Then one day he of his own accord suggested, why don't we start making our own translation? This is after I'd known him for a few months. From that time onwards, we started translating Guru Kovai. So the first work we translated was Guru Kovai, which took many years. I can't remember how many years it took us to complete because he, he always had a lot of work. He was editing Murugana's works and there was a constant flow of visitors and everything. But we eventually we translated the whole of Guru Kovai, at least a rough translation. And in the meanwhile, I'd asked him about other works. And um, when I read translations of Uludan Apu, I wasn't very satisfied with that. I'd asked him and he'd shown me his translations. Then when I questioned him more, he said, oh, we can improve this. So I think he and I, we went through all of Bhagavan's works, all of Bhagavan's original writings. We translated in bits and pieces. Sometimes it was just a matter of, of improving on a, on a translation which he'd done earlier with other people, because his knowledge of English was fairly limited. Um, 
he could express himself well in English in spite of speaking very ungrammatically and writing very ungrammatically because he had natural power of expressing himself. But when it comes to translating, you need to translate precisely. And so he would, he would make a rough translation in English. I would then read it, see if I can polish it. I'd question him about it. And in that way, we, we improved the translations. But many of the translations we did, I have since, by going deeper into the subject, I've found better ways of expressing them in English. And I, once my, as my understanding of Tamil has been, um, has been deepening, as I've been understanding Tamil more clearly, I've found better ways of expressing it in English. So my translations, even now I'm still improving my translations, but I went through all the important works of Bhagavan with Sadhuam. The important works are um, basically Arunachala Stutipanchikam. That's the five hymns to Arunachala. <clears throat> the main, <coughs> the main five hymns are Arunachaksara on Malai. That's 108 verses. That is Akshara Manamalai. Akshara means has two meanings. Akshara means imperishable. It also means uh, a letter of the alphabet. But because um, Indian alphabets are syllabic alphabets. That that is, um, there's a, a separate character for each syllable. So so uh, so, for example, there's a uh, K is one letter, K A is another letter, uh, K uh, long A is another letter, K short uh, uh, K I is another short letter. So like that, it, they're syllable, they're alphabets made out of syllables. So basically, akshara means a syllable. Mana means marriage or union. And malay means a garland. So it is a garland of, uh, of it's, a, it's, a, it's a marriage garland of letters. Because in an in Indian marriage ceremony, one of the key parts of the ceremony is when the bride and bridegroom exchange garlands. So Bhagavan made this garland uh, of verses uh, as his to, to adorn Aranachala and pray to Aranachala to adorn with the garland of his grace. So it, it is a it's a bridal garland. That is it's a it is what in Christianity would be called um a bridal mysticism. That is he he's praying for the divine marriage. Um so the Akshara it's called Akshara because each each verse begins, it, it's in alphabetical order. So each, each verse starts with a new syllable, going through the whole alphabet. Um, and Akshara also means imperishable. So it also means the garland of imperishable union, because the marriage Bhagavan is, is praying for is not a, a bodily marriage, it's a spiritual marriage, an eternal and imperishable marriage. So that is, those are very short verses but extremely deep in meaning. Many of the verses give, give, can be interpreted in a number of different ways, but all the interpretations are so rich and deep in meaning. So that arguably is the one, well, it's either the most important or one of the most important works of Bhagavan. Because in, whereas in other works, Bhagavan is telling us what needs to be done. In Aksharam, like he's, 
He's showing us the actual path. That is, when you follow this, we, when we try to turn our attention within, we come across so many obstacles in the form of our own vastness. So, Akshramalai is showing us, uh, is so to speak, it's taking us by the hand and leading us along the path. It, and it's, as Bhagavan said, bhakti is the mother of jnana. Love is the mother of knowledge. So without all-consuming love, we cannot even begin on... Well, it's love that begins us on this path, and we cannot uh, succeed in this path until our life, love becomes all-consuming. Um, because we have this, this path of the Bhagavan has taught us, the path of self-investigation and self-surrender. That is, we cannot... In, investigate and know what we actually are without surrendering ourselves completely, without giving up, giving, giving ourselves entirely. So it requires supreme love. So Akshram Lai is all about that, that the love that is required to follow this path. So that is such a precious work, very, very deep and highly significant work. I just recently, I've started to explain those verses I've always felt in trepidation to do so because I feel like, uh, can I really do justice to it? Because it's such a deep work. But anyway, um, fools rush where angels fail to tread. So uh, being the fool I am, I'm rushing into it, doing my best to explain it. And I'm also um, I'm explaining it in a series of meetings with the local group here in London, but I'm also writing articles on each verse as uh, before doing so. So, because that makes me think more deeply about it. Um, then the other four hymns are Arunachal and Nabamani Malai, which is a collection of nine verses that he composed at different times. Um, the first two, three verses are about, yeah, first three verses are all verses praising the greatness of our natural's grace. Uh, verses four, five, six, and seven are all heart-melting prayers. And seven, so eight and nine are, are um, semi-autobiographical verses. Um, as I say, these are verses composed at different times in different contexts. Um, then comes another really important work, Avranachala Patikam. These verses uh, are verses that came to Bhagavan spontaneously. That is, the, the opening words of the first verse, those words kept on coming to his mind, karaneyalene, karaneyalene. That means, by grace me, by grace me. These words kept on coming to his mind. And he thought, what have these words got to do with me? He was brushing them aside. But eventually, he, just, he, he wrote down one of the verses. And uh, the first verse. And we, the next day, a verse beginning with the last word of the previous verse started coming to his, um, uh, I think the, the first verse ends with Ambei, uh, means O oh, love. And the second verse begins Amburu, Amburu Varanachala, Varanachala, the, the form of love. Um, let me see. Yes, that's the second verse. So like that, each verse, begins with the previous, uh, with the concluding word of the previous verse. So like this, for a number of days, 
for um, actually for um, 17 days, the, the, a verse was coming to him each day and he wrote it down. Then uh, a devotee was about to print some other verses he had written. And when he came to know about this, he said, oh, can I print these also? Then Bhagavan looked at it. He saw the first 11 were in one meter. They were, uh, it was a particular type of viratum with seven uh, metrical feet in each line. So he took those 11 and called them Aranacha Paticum, which means 10 verses, but traditionally a, a group of 10 verses will always have an 11th verse. And then the other six verses, they were in an eight-seer viratum, an eight-foot viratum. So usually often, verse, often songs have eight verses. So Bhagavan composed the final two verses to make it into an ashtakam. That's how Aranacha Paticum and Ashtakam uh, came into being. Those are very, very beautiful and deep verses, full of bhakti and jnana. That is a lot of Bhagavan. Bhagavan has given his, the, many of the, the deepest teachings in Uludunapadu, we can find particularly in uh, Aranachashtakam. Um, he explains there how, but that's only in verse six, for example, he says, Undoru porul arivoli ulameni. There is only one thing, one substance, you, the, the, the heart, the light of awareness. Uh, you means, he's, referring, he's addressing Aranacha. So you means Aranacha. What is Aranacha? Aranacha is the heart, the light of awareness. So what is shining within us as I, that is Aranacha. Then he goes on to explain how uh, in that, in you, but not other than you, there is a wonderful power. That is the Maya or mind. From that, he explains how the world is created. The world is nothing but, um, but he uses there the cinema analogy. Uh, Bhagavan was very topical because these verses he composed, I think, about 1912. So cinemas were hardly, uh, particularly in South India, they were people had heard of cinemas, but they were hardly become had become popular by that time. Um, in an, in an earlier verse, he used an analogy of a, a photographic plate. Once a photographic plate is, is a, exposed to the sun, it cannot take any other image. Likewise, when the mind is exposed to the sun of pure awareness, it will no longer be able to grasp any image. So he uses very, uh, what were in those days, very modern and um, scientific um, or technological, the, the cutting-edge technology of the day, he used as analogies. Um, so in verse 6, he explains how the world comes into existence, and it's nothing but thoughts. It's just a, a, like a picture being projected on a screen. It's um, The world is projected on the screen of the mind. Um, and he said the world inside and outside, because there, in our experience, there seem to be two worlds. There's the external world of material objects, and there's the internal world of our thoughts and feelings and everything. All is just a projection, according to Bhagavan. And, and finally, he, in that verse, he ends by saying, Nindrida sendrida ninevida vindre. Let them appear or not appear. They're not other than you. In other words, he's indicating there we should be unconcerned about the appearance. Let anything appear or not appear. It's not other than you. And what is you? You means Aranachala, who he said in the first verse 
is the light of awareness, the heart. So he's what is always shining, the, the awareness I am, which is always shining in our heart. That alone is our natural, that alone is what is real. So let us not be concerned about this appearance. We should be concerned only about what is real, namely I am. That is the implication there. And then in the next verse, he goes on to say, he begins by saying, Indraha meno neni piravondrum, that if, if uh, uh, Indraham uh, uh, if the thought called I does not exist, the thought called I means ego, if it does not exist, nothing else exists. And then he goes on to describe the practice of self-investigation. Until then, if any other thought appears, to whom, to me, who am I? He's there by he's giving the, the, the core practice. Whatever may appear, to whom does it appear? To me, who am I? That's why he said in the previous verse, let it appear or let it not appear. It's not other than you. The practical uh, implication of that is whatever may appear, to whom does it appear? We should turn our attention back within. And thereby we merge back into the heart and we become the emperor under the shade of a single umbrella. In other words, we become the supreme lord of the universe. And then he says, then the dream of, of duality, the dream of pairs of opposites, of uh, inside and outside, of good karma and bad karma, all these dualities, it's all just a dream, and this dream will, will no longer exist. What will exist is only you. Our, our, um, how does he end it? Um, <coughs> Mandraham Achilama Nadamidum Aruna Malayanum Elearum Aruloli Kadale. Only you, the, the, the light of grace, um, uh, only you, the, the ocean which is the light of the ocean of the light of grace, uh, um, the arrow. Um, without any limit, the limitless, the, 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 the ocean, the limitless ocean of the light of grace. The light of grace means the light of awareness. Um, uh, called Arana Malay, called the, uh, uh, called the Arana Hill, who are dancing in the, um, Nadomidu, uh, who are dancing motionlessly in the court of the heart. So Bhagavan's verses, that these these all the verses in Arunacha Stutipanchikam, they are full of bhakti anyana, so beautifully blended together. And then finally, there's another um, uh, 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 the final hymn is called Arunacha Pancharatnam. That's five verses. Um, uh, again, there's a lot of jnana teachings there. He says in the second verse that Arunacha is always dancing in the heart as I, therefore his name is heart. And then he gives the practice beautifully in the, um, in the third verse. Um, uh, what is it? Aham mukamar andam amalamati tannal. Ahamidutan engirumen. Drawing, uh, it's a beautiful verse. 
I'll just give one sample verse because Ahamukama, yeah. uh, Ahamukam means facing inwards. Ahamukama, under Amalamaki Tanal, by that my, by that blemishless mind, which is turning inwards, Aham, Aham, Idutan, in, where, where did this eye rise? Uh, investigating where did this eye rise? Ahavuruve, knowing knowing clearly the the, the nature of eye by investigating uh, where this eye rises. Um, uh, uh, knowing that, well, one will merge in you in our, uh, in Aranach in, in you Aranachula like a like a river in the ocean. So he clearly explains the practice there again. So the, 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 for Bhagavan, Atmavichara, self-investigation and self-surrender are inseparable. So these are the five hymns to Arunachala. Then there are the works which are more, which are the Upadesha works. These are called Upadesha Numalai, the collect. Um, uh, Upadesha means the, the teachings. Though, of course, there's so many teachings there in Arunachal Stutipanchakam, Upadesha Numalaya, the collection of verses that are particularly giving Upadesha. That is Upadesha Undia, the 30 verses. Then Uludu, that, that's very, very, that uh, Upadesha Undia and Uludunapdi are two of the most important works. So Upadesha Undia, then Uludunapdu. Uludunapdu is the uh, 40 verses on what is. That gives a very, Bhagavan gives his teachings there in its very, very purest and deepest for, uh, he gives the deepest and purest expression to his core teachings in Uludunapdu. That's uh, the most important work. Well, I say that of everyone because <laughs> each is important in its own way, but Uludunapdu is, is, uh, I don't think there's any jnana sastra in the world that can compare with Uludunapadu. It is something, it is such a deep work. Then there's Uludunapadu Anubandam, which is a collection of, of again, another 40 verses. Um, but they're verses that Bhagavan wrote at different times. So many of them are translations from other texts. Um, so there are many nice teachings there, but of course it's nothing to compare with uh, with Uludunapdu in its depth and um, and in, in its very systematic treatment of the subject. Then there's Ekam um, Mapanchikam. That was the last work Bhagavan wrote. That's five verses. Um, then Aplapatu, um, that's a, a song he composed for his mother, a game full of jnana teachings. And um, one of the most beautiful of all, uh, Anma Vide, that is the five verses. It, it's, a, it's a kirtanam, so it's got a refrain, a sub-refrain, and five verses. The refrain and sub-refrain were composed by Murugana, and the verses are explaining the refrain and sub-refrain. The refrain is, Aye Atisulapum. That is, ah, so easy. Anma vide, apma vidya, ah, so easy. So um, he's, uh, he, the, that song is explaining why this is the easiest of all paths. So that's a very, very important and beautiful, beautiful work, very deep in meaning. 
Um, so those are the main works in Upadesha Numalai. Sadwam also collected together 25 um, stray verses, and he edited them together into a work called um, Upadesha Numalai. Sorry, Upadesha Tanipaka. That means uh, miscellaneous verses of Upadesha. Again, like Uludhunapdu Anabandam, that's a mixture of verses that Bhagavan translated and his own original verses. That's 27 verses. So those are the main Bhagavan's original verse compositions. And then um, uh, the other most important work is Nana, Who Am I? Uh, that is really the... Um, it's that, that that's the most important uh, of all the prose works. Others were translated or just what Bhagavan wrote as introductions. Or, but I mean, nothing compares with, with uh, Nana. It's such an important work. Bhagavan gives all the basic principles of his teaching and explains the practice so clearly. So that is um, that ranks along with. Um, with Upadesh Undia and Uludunapdu is one of the three core texts of Bhagavan's teachings. If we if we study and understand these three texts, Upadesh Undia, Uludunapdu, and Nana, we understand we will understand all the basic principles of his teachings. By the way, I started translating as I wrote to you some time ago that I took this uh, challenge to translate these three. Three uh, major works in Finnish. Mm. Yeah, this Ulla Nabdu uh, I already did roughly though yes. it's finished, mm. but I doubt that it, I haven't finished my translation. Yet. Yeah, I think I never. It, it will always be a rough <laughs> translation. <laughs> but anyway, I took this as as a good practice. Also. Yes, it is. It is. But um, but I think, as I heard from somebody, some publishers say that it's not a bestseller. So <laughs> I don't think it will. I don't think it will ever be a bestseller. <laughs> but it's, it's very nice to be continue and just get more deeply involved. Yeah. That's the main idea. Yeah. Great. Democracy is very good for running this uh, society, but democracy doesn't apply to spirituality. <laughs> no. uh, but we, we cannot decide the truth on how many votes it gets. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. The, quite the, a, quite deeper, a the deeper something is, the less popular it will be. Yeah, because absolutely. at any time, there'll be relatively few people who really want to go deep into any subject. Mm. Particularly the spiritual subject. Yes. But at least you can, uh, when you have democracy, you, at least you can, uh, for example, publish this book uh, on your own account. For yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, democracy is very good. There are many benefits in democracy. But definitely. Because and, and also, we, we, we have freedom of belief in democracy, yes, which you yes. don't have in many societies in the world. It's, it's very important because, for example, my, uh, uh, my teachers, I call him, the very yeah. first uh, um, spiritual man, really spiritual man that I met. I mean, he was the first president of uh, Krishna Society in Ukraine, in Kyiv. Mm. Yes. And he was just imagine he was imprisoned and put in lunatic asylum uh, for his beliefs. It, yes. it, it was before Soviet Union collapsed. So I mean that uh, just because of uh, his activity, I mean, he, yes. and it, this activity was quite uh, uh, limited. 
Yes. Anyway, anyway so, but, uh, uh, but this is how it is. So it's better to have democracy, I have to say. I, th- I, th- I think, um, yes, I, democracy, um, democracy is never perfect, but it's better than any other system that we could ever come up with. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah, I grew up in China, so (laughs) yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so you know, yeah, yes, Yes. you can understand. (laughs) Well, that's quite a quite a remarkable. uh, There's no words to express. Of course, it's just it's like amazing this this whole work that you did. And with Sadhuam and the whole thing, it's unbelievable. Well, it, it, what is most unbelievable is that Bhagavan should choose such a worthless person to do all these things. Uh, I, I think he chose quite well. <laughs> I trust he, pe- people, people, people used to bring Bhagavan costly pens, Schaefer pens or Parker pens. Oh, yeah. And whenever he was offered some some very costly pen, he would say, "Oh, take it to the office. They've got so many important things to write there." <laughs> and they people say, "No, no, Bhagwan, you've got important things to write. You write uh, Uludunapadu and this and that, and you copy so many things for people. Uh, so better you have a um, you better you have a better pen." He said, "No, no, my old leaky pen. This this does its purpose." <laughs> so Bhagwan chooses very very um, substandard instruments. To do his work. <laughs> oh, I have to what say, is, some things that are useless would be useless in anyone else's hands. Anyone else will complain. Oh, this pen is yeah. old, leaky. It doesn't write properly. It doesn't write smoothly. Nobody else would have been satisfied with that. Bhagavan was satisfied with it. So Bhagavan will choose even the most worthless instruments. <laughs> in, in in his previous avatar as Rama. When he was fighting some demon, he took a, a small blade of grass and you and said some mantra, made, used it as a Brahmastra. Brahmastra means the supremely powerful weapon. <laughs> so he can use even the most worthless thing to do his work if he wants to. <laughs> I think he chose right, of course. Can't can't disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been around three hours. Yes. Uh, I don't know if there's any questions. I don't know. We don't, I think, have. But uh, if somebody has questions, please ask, of course. Uh, Michael, I, I think I, 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 I want to say something strange, but I mean, that, <laughs> that, uh, what, uh, uh, but this, this uh, interesting thing that uh, this, such people, I mean, very humble, like Pahavan, I mean, that they uh, were not this, this uh, the thing is that they the very fact that they didn't like to waste anything yes it is also it is from i mean these people are somehow absolutely completed human beings because they are they were very loving in everything but you don't waste you just save something yes immediately you save something that i mean that they they were were saving always something. Uh, it was both souls and material. <laughs> yes, yes. It is said, but, but, but people saw Bhagavan, if he spots on the ground a yes. grain of rice uh-huh. or even a mustard seed, he will pick it up, he will take it to the kitchen and he will put it in the appropriate tin or container. So not even a mustard seed he will, or a grain of rice he will, 
you will waste. From my point of view, it is such a great uh, yes. capacity. Yes, yes. How different to our modern day society where we waste so much. Waste so much. Waste, yes. It's somehow it is immediately, uh, uh, it's like in, in, indicating uh, of something is wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and you know, all the products are just for short use. Like they, they, make the, they make the products for short use. Yeah, because I remember like washing machines, they were for decades and decades. Nowadays, yeah. it's only a year or two and they're yeah, yeah, yeah. they don't use them anymore. Yeah. And like everything else, it's just, then they recycle, of course, nowadays. Yeah. But, yeah. but still, yeah, don't make it properly anymore. It's like yeah. the light bulb. Actually, the, they never, they can last for a hundred years. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Normally. Yes. Well, if there's, if there isn't any questions, in that case, I just, of, of course, thank you, Michael. It was absolutely well, All wonderful. thanks to Bhagavan. All thanks to Bhagavan. Yeah, but it was very, very... Thank you, Michael. Yeah. Thank you, Jussie. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank <laughs> all of you. Thank you. And thank you. It was wonderful. All the, it's good to say. Yeah. All the best for you. And I wish all the best. Yeah. Let's hope the light will be bright over there also right. and uh, the topics were after all are quite i think they were quite nice because they mm. had this full circle and and yeah. extra in the end with these yes. writing our uh, teachings and this yes. work so thank you very much michael once again okay thank for you. your healing yeah. you are healing us yes <laughs> bhagavan is the doctor he's doing yeah. all the healing <laughs> Absolutely. i'm just a fellow patient in the hospital <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I see you. <laughs> you, you are the uh, chief nurse. Mike. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm chief. <laughs> I'm one of the most critically ill patients. <laughs> yeah, intensive care unit here, but anyway. Yes. yes. <laughs> all right. Thank you all. Okay. Right, you thank you. Thank, thank you. Right, thank, thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. 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 bye.